Did you know that this podcast is a part of the Jayzo Modcast Podcast Network? Chances are, if you enjoy this show, you'll find other great podcasts on the network, too. The Jayzo Modcast Network offers you a choice of shows seven days a week, starting with Monday. Join Rebecca C. Lofgren, Aaron Illick, and David K. Montoya in Seeing Red. The trio dive deep down the rabbit hole each week with a combination of geek and weird news. Then on Tuesdays, join the boys from the Great White North, Mike Lutz, Rob Bellamy, and Jason Beckard in the movie Madhouse as they bring you everything Hollywood and more. On Wednesdays, Reaper Rick's Tree Frog Expose Cafe, where he crosses the line of limits as he gives us news that is unforgettable and personal views that you'll definitely remember as well. Spend Thursdays with Jim Bennett and Nick McKelvey as they join forces in American Fat Ass Podcast to talk about various topics from news, sports, to their personal lives, all the while with a humorous slant in an unapologetic fashion. Fridays, Rob Bellamy is joined with Mike Lutz as they jump in the Wayback Machine to explore the archives of the JZO Modcast to give you three hours of audio entertainment in Flashback Fridays. Saturdays, join JZO Modcast founder David K. Montoya as he explores the world for a single of Who's the Boss? Then Sundays, finish the week with What We Think with hosts S. Sadie Burbank and David K. Montoya as they tell us exactly what they think about pop culture, celebrities, and the world at large with a ton of vulgarity mixed in for good measure. The JZO Modcast Podcast Network. We've got what you want seven days a week for free. Listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher or like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And don't forget to check us out at jazelmon.com slash jazelmodcast. And now enjoy this free jazelmodcast show. I don't know. What, oh, because I didn't turn it on. You didn't turn the ticking on? No. Dude, turn the ticking on. It's too late. We're already recording. We're still... Oh. Hey, welcome <laughs> to Flashback Fridays. <laughs> My name's Rob. I'm Mike. <laughs> and uh, waiting for Jay, but he's not going to say anything. No, Jay. Jay. I'm Jay. Jay keeps missing his cue. <sighs> There's a shock. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, Scoutmaster Rob. Yes. Uh we're here to do a show. Absolutely. We're going to do another number one show. How many number one? We can only do so many. Well, this is our second number one. All right. And that will leave. I think we can do one more. One, two, three. Oh, look at that. There's three, four left that we haven't done number one. Holy cow. Look at that. Dave, you need some more shows. Oh, don't touch the wire. Jeez. We need some more shows. Yep. That way we can do more number ones. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, we're not doing the one. So, yeah, there's three left. We can do one more number one show. And I lost that page. Oh, well. 
Okay. On with the show. On with the show. Our first episode of number ones, Reaper Rick's Tree Frog Expose Cafe, number one. Hmm. Good. This is from January of 2013. Okay. And in this first episode, Reaper, Reaper Rick covers the importance of sex, relationships, IHOP, and why he doesn't go to the movie theaters anymore. Sex is important. Especially at an IHOP. Especially at an IHOP. That's right. One of my favorite songs. Oh. Is, what? Oh. Okay. No, it's a good song. Okay. <laughs> this Fight at the Waffle House. Oh. Really? But, yeah. You haven't heard that? No, we're not talking about a Waffle House, though. IHOP. IHOP is not Waffle House. What is it, then? IHOP, International House of Pancakes. Right. What's a pancake? It's not, a flat waffle. Not, well, but there's a, a franchise called the Waffle House. Oh. Well, that's no fun. No? No. Why not? Because. makes no. There's no relevance, then. Mm. And I'm referencing a song that has nothing to do with IHOP. Uh, Damn. You're going to have to write one. All right. Fist fight at the IHOP. <laughs> Coming out next summer. That's right. <laughs> to an iPad near you. Uh-huh. And there'll be sex and relationships. Hey, just hit play. Oh, fine. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Reaper Rick, and this is News, Views, and Reviews. Some of you first-time listeners may know me from my movie reviews that I used to write for The World of Myth for a number of years, and more recently, I did the same thing on Herotica Magazine. What we're going to do on this program, so I'm just going to talk to you like we were friends, all of you out there in Cyberland, wherever you may be, and share with you things I feel are important for you to know. So, let's get started with the news. <clears throat> for anybody who may have missed this, um, the Earth managed to survive the December 21st, 2012 Mayan Doomsday Prophecy. Let's give everybody a big hand for that. But Doomsday Preppers can't come out of their holes just yet because even though the 21st has passed, there is still a lot of shit coming down on this little rock that we live on. One of the reasons that the uh, the Mayan prophecy was thought to be important was because on December 21st of last year the sun lined up with the galactic center of our galaxy big dark rift and since that only happens about every 26,000 years people thought that something well, god-awful was going to happen. Didn't, though. <clears throat> NASA was able to take some photographs of the Dark Rift the morning of the 21st, and I have them right here. As you can see, if you look carefully into the center of our galaxy, there's a little figure there, and he seems to be flipping us off. Well, some people just can't take a joke, I guess. 
better luck next time. However, it wasn't just the alignment that was causing problems. Many people thought that there was going to be a polar shift on the 21st, which meant that poles would shift, the earth would possibly tilt, and all kinds of hell would break loose from that too. Well, calling it a polar shift is actually a misnomer. What would actually happen would be a geomagnetic shift in the poles. In other words, the magnetic poles would shift. And that would actually cause quite a bit of shit to happen. Bad shit. Because we have a magnetosphere around the Earth that protects us, for the most part, from dangerous radiation that is emitted from the sun. If we did not have this magnetosphere, we wouldn't be here, we'd all be dead. The planet would be a fucking barren rock, pretty much like Mars. The problem is that even on the NASA website, they have noted that the northern magnetic pole is actually sliding eastward. It's moving. And it's moving up to 40 kilometers a year. Now, I don't know how much a kilometer is. I live in the United States, not in fucking Europe. But 40 kilometers sounds like it could be a sizable amount of movement to occur every single year for the past decade. Now, <clears throat> there have been polar shifts in the past on this planet. They have historical records for that, but they don't happen overnight. It takes hundreds, if not thousands of years for something like that to actually occur. And it would appear, actually, that the Earth is entering into a phase of possible geomagnetic polar shift. Now, the, the problem with that is, for us, here on Earth, is that more radiation enters the Earth's atmosphere at the poles, the magnetic poles. Now, at the present time, of course, you know, not a whole lot of stuff lives in the North, at the North Pole or in Antarctica, except, you know, penguins and polar bears, and I guess they're used to the extra radiation. But if the magnetic poles slide, shift down into Europe, the northern magnetic pole, slides into Europe, and the southern slides up into, say, Indonesia or someplace else that's highly populated, that extra radiation is going to cause serious problems to not only people, but to plants and animals and anything else that lives there that isn't used to that kind of radiation. So, yes, doomsday preppers, you could be right about that, but... It probably won't affect us. It may affect our children or grandchildren. You know, and fuck, what are you going to do about it? You can't, can't do nothing. So there is that problem. 
<clears throat> another serious problem that doomsday preppers are concerned about is another possible asteroid strike. And even though meteors and small bits of rock come through the atmosphere every day, sometimes as many as 50 a day, they usually burn up. They're too small to do any damage. However, we have a lot of what they call near-Earth objects, asteroids, that <clears throat> are flying around out there that actually come relatively close to the planet. In fact, 2012 was a bumper year for asteroids just missing planet Earth. Um, in September, the asteroid Apophis, 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 big fucking asteroid, <clears throat> whizzed by the Earth only 18 days after it was discovered in space. Now, that's not a whole lot of time to prepare for anything if it was going to hit us. Now, the problem there is that even though it went by this time, they've already calculated that it's going to come by again in 2029, not too far away. And if it misses us then, it's coming by again in 2036. At that time, they think it may actually hit us. Bad news, bad news. <clears throat> That's not the only, the only asteroid out there that is uh, a PHA, which is a potentially hazardous asteroid. So we have NEOs and PHAs. NEOs, near-Earth asteroid, no, wait, near-Earth object, sorry, my mistake, potentially hazardous asteroids. Now, they have a number of those that have whizzed by the Earth in just the past few months between the orbit of the Moon and the Earth. That's only 250,000 miles, approximately. Some of these little bastards have come within 37,000 miles of the Earth. You know, you could reach up and touch those fuckers. Okay, so anyway, asteroids, another potential deadly disaster for the Earth. A big one could wipe out Earth, well, wipe out life on Earth. It's happened before. <clears throat> Now, another interesting aspect of the Doomsday Prepper, Doomsday Totality, is a giant EMP, which is an electromagnetic pulse, which would fry all of our mechanical, computer, electrical systems. Now, those, those could come from a nuclear attack, which is, you know, not overly likely. But, it could also come from the sun. The sun has a 12-year solar cycle, which reached, reached its peak in 2012. 
we've already had a few near misses and a few solar flares which have sent out <clears throat> energy pulses that disrupted satellites, cell phones, things like that for a while. But if a really, really, really big flare were to hit, <clears throat> excuse me, hit Earth directly, it could cause almost every single machine we have on the planet to stop working. That would be a serious problem. Doesn't mean it's going to happen anytime soon, but you never know. Okay. And if all of that shit wasn't bad enough, there's one more global catastrophe that we have looming over our heads. That would be supervolcano eruption. Supervolcano eruption could very easily wipe out life on Earth, at least as we know it. Now, the largest supervolcano in the world, guess where that's located? Come on, guess. Right in the middle of the United States, dude, in Yellowstone Park in Wyoming. This volcano has erupted in the past. And it's been big, big eruptions. The caldera in Yellowstone is like 50 miles long. 50 miles long. And more than half that wide. If that bastard goes off again, you can just kiss your ass goodbye. But hey, it, it only erupts every 600 and 600,000 600, years or so. And uh, technically it's 40,000 years late for an eruption. That's good news. But regardless of that, want everybody to enjoy their lives while they can. Can't worry about sh shit you can't do nothing about. <clears throat> so, moving right along with program going to uh, talk a little bit about hey sex everybody likes sex right I uh, before I get into the sex part I, I, I did want to mention that uh, my wife and I celebrated our 20th anniversary last last month and uh, yeah I know thank you thank you uh, but you know I, I have to admit that this is my, my third marriage. So I didn't 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 get it right the first couple of times. Uh, altogether I think I've been married more than thirty seven years, which is over half my life, you know, but uh, aside from that. Um <clears throat> the problem with uh being married is that you uh, don't really know what you're getting into until sometimes it's too late. So what, what are you going to do about that? <clears throat> well, you need to know some facts before you get 
into a serious relationship. And many, many people ignore these facts because, I mean, let's face it, when you're dating somebody and you're trying to show them the best side of yourself, we go out of our way to be nice and, and be uh, gentlemanly. And <clears throat> pretty much you do everything you can to get them in the sack, right? Well, that's fine, but you never know anybody until after you've slept with them. And I don't mean had sex with them, because having sex with them only tells you certain aspects. But when you've actually slept with them after the sex, and you wake up the next morning, and you roll over, what's the first thing you want to do? Get the hell out of there? Or hug them, give them a kiss? You know, I mean, you get past the bad breath, and the disheveled hair, and the, the smeared makeup and everything. If you can still reach out and be a nice guy to someone, well, that's a good sign. <clears throat> and believe me, if you do get married, you have to remember that 90% of whatever goes wrong in your marriage is going to be your fault. I'm talking to the guys here now, of course. Yeah, 90% of anything that goes wrong is going to be your fault. Now, the other 10% of stuff that goes wrong is probably going to be your mother's fault. Okay? You have to realize up front that the woman is never wrong. And not only is she never wrong, when she is wrong, she'll never admit it, at least not to you. She might tell her girlfriends, you know, that she was wrong, but she's not going to tell you that she was ever wrong. So basically, what you have to do in order to make a relationship work is know that everything is your fault. Everything is your fault. Say you're sitting down, watching a game, having a beer, just relaxing, just cooling it. Yeah, your wife comes in, into the room. Honey, what do you want for dinner? You say, oh, it doesn't matter, dear. Uh, you know, what have we got? And she goes, well, you know what we've got. What, would you, what do you want to eat? And you say, it doesn't matter. I don't care. I'm watching the game. Fine. And she stomps off into the kitchen. No problem, you think. 30 minutes later, you smell food. You hear her dishes clinking in the kitchen. And she doesn't call you. So you wander into the kitchen. And she's sitting at the table eating dinner. And there's nothing for you. There's no plate, no nothing. And you go, hey, you having dinner? She goes, yes. What does it look like? And you say, oh, okay. Just checking. And so you walk into the kitchen area, and she goes, Anything you dirty, you gotta clean up. And you go, Okay, dear. And you just grab another beer and a, a bag of chips, and you go back into the den, and you, you continue watching your movie. 
Yeah, that's fine, you know. No problem, no fight, no argument. So she comes in a few minutes later, and she stands there with her fists on her little hips, and she says, Is that going to be your dinner? Is that all you're going to eat? And, you know, you look at her and smile and say, Dear, I'm just watching the game and having a snack. You know, I'll eat something better later. Don't worry about it. Nope, you're not going to get away with it, dude. <clears throat> the smallest thing is going to cause her to be pissed off. Doesn't matter. What you have to be able to do is bring her down from that high anger level. And the best thing to do that with is sex, okay? And uh, I can I can tell you guys that if you know you approach her in whatever way you do when you want to have sex and you want to let her know you want sex, and she says, "Not tonight, I have a headache." Well, then you're doing something wrong, dude. Because, believe it or not, most women like sex. And they're not going to pass it up just because they're pretending to be mad at you. Or, in fact, they are mad at you. Sex is important to women. That's why they have vibrators. <clears throat> so, if your wife, your lover, your spouse, whatever, is not letting you have the sex you want, then you must be doing something wrong in the bed because they're not going to pass up a free sex any more than you are. So what you have to do is figure out what she wants in the area of sex to make her happy. If you make her happy, she'll make you happy. You just go in there with a quick Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And you're done in five minutes. You know, well, yeah, she's going to say, no, I have a headache tonight. Because that's no fun for her. I mean, just because you put it in there and you think that you're really giving it to her and all of that, <clears throat> that doesn't always make it, dude. you got to think about her sometimes. you got to make it good for her. You make it good for her first, she's going to make it really good for you, okay? That's something you got to remember. You know, if you don't know, ask about her fetishes. And if she says she doesn't have any, she's lying to you, okay? Women have fetishes. Men have fetishes. Now, a man's fetish may be a little more detailed and drawn out and more kinky but <clears throat> but women have fetishes dude you gotta dig in there and find out what they are could be something small I've known women who had fetishes for guys with big Adam's apples oh, whatever um, some women like hairy chests some women like bare chests some women like bald guys you know some women like feet you never know, but you got to work around and pry it out. 
<clears throat> you know, and something else you got to learn how to do, especially if you're not into that at all, is going downtown. You know, you like it, they like it too. All right. <clears throat> so don't just uh, don't just climb on the horse and ride, dude. You got to get them interested. You got to get them warmed up. You got to get them hot. You do that, and you'll probably get a lot more pleasure from the ride. And it doesn't hurt to be romantic once in a while. Women, women like that. Guys, not so much. But women, women will dig that. You keep her happy sexually, and your life will be a lot easier and better. You know, um, ask a, ask her about her dildo or her vibrator, and chances are. If she says she doesn't have one, she's also lying. But not always. I have known a few women that didn't like or didn't use vibrators until I showed them how pleasurable they can be. So it's up to you, dude. You're either going to make it better or make it worse. And it's so much easier if life is better. You know, you can't do the muff diving. Use the vibrator on her. No vibrator. Take a shower together and use the handheld pulse mode on the shower head. Anything at all to make her feel better. You know, if she likes it and she looks forward to it, that means she'll get more. More pleasure, more happiness, more fucking peace of mind and peace in the house. It's entirely possible. You can do it if you try. So, <clears throat> remember those points, all right? Well, okay, and, and you know, I'm sure that my women listeners out there are going, "What an asshole to be saying shit like that." And and not that that's not that's not it because I mean, I, I love women, you know. Um, I've loved lots of women, but it's not, it's not just the guys I'm talking to. You know, I mentioned, uh, fetishes, but women have fantasies, um, just like men do. Um, uh, and try to find out if your woman has fantasies. It may take some work. May women don't like to talk about that very much, not like guys do. But women have fantasies. If you can find out what their fantasies are and you can fulfill them, well, you're going to be a lot better off. Trust me. Um, guys, guys like porn. Well, most guys do, and surprisingly. Uh, there are a lot of women out there that also like porn. Now, if you're a porn lover, guys, and you happen across a, a female who also likes to watch porn, well, you got to keep her there. Let me tell you. But 
women's fantasies. You gotta gotta dig down and find out what makes them sexually happy. You know, if they're not happy. You're not gonna get as much sex. If they are happy, they're gonna want it more often, which makes everybody happy. So, all right, I I, I guess that's uh, enough sex talk. Let's move on to uh, my review for the night. You know, <clears throat> I've something I've always wanted to do was to be a food critic. Go around to different restaurants, check out their food, and write reviews on restaurants. The reason I've always wanted to do that is because I actually pretty much hate going out to restaurants. Uh, for one thing, I've, I've been a vegetarian for over 40 years, and well, obviously, when you go to a restaurant, it's hard to judge all their food if you're only eating a small portion of it. But besides that, I worked in restaurants when I was in my early employment period. I worked in a number of different restaurants. I worked in a number of different uh, fast food restaurants. So I know what goes on behind the counters, behind the glass, behind the doors. And it, it's not always pretty. I mean, sure, they have uh, rules and laws and things that are supposed to keep restaurants uh, clean and keep the employees from spitting in your food, but that doesn't always work. I mean, that's fine when the boss is there, but at night or in the evening when the boss is gone and there's no one else around, you've got the employees back there, and they pretty much do whatever the fuck they want to. Um, I don't like strange people touching my food because, I mean, it's bad enough when you have salmonella and listeria outbreaks in the food you buy from the store but in restaurants you can get hepatitis and you know god knows what else from the employees and you never know whether the place you're going to eat is going to be clean or not so Most of the time, when I do go out to a restaurant, I end up with a meal that's not very... Well, it sucks for the most part. I've never <clears throat> had a really good meal at a restaurant. Um, so I just don't like to go to restaurants, period. So being a food critic would... would probably not be a good job choice for me, but I still always wanted to do it because for the most part I wanted to give bad reviews to all of these miserable restaurants that I've spent my money at and ended up being unfulfilled afterwards. Okay, okay, I guess I'll have to retract that statement about never having a decent meal in a restaurant because I have had a few good meals in restaurants. Um, I've, I've noticed that uh, 
if you have a margarita or a Bloody Mary or something before the meal, food always seems to taste better. <clears throat> but uh, aside from that, my wife, she loves to go out to restaurants to eat. Uh, I mean, it's like a special treat for her, I guess, because it's a vacation, like, I guess, because she doesn't have to spend time in the kitchen working on her own. So anyway, yeah, she does like, she does like to go out to, to, to restaurants to eat. And, uh, the problem we've had past few years is that we hardly ever have, uh, the money to go out to a restaurant to eat. And I, I just, uh, don't like fast food. You know, my wife will go out and, and she'll, she'll go to the, the Pink Panda, whatever the fuck that is, a place where they have Chinese food. She'll bring back a big bucket of that crap there. She'll go grab herself a big, big hamburger or something. And, and, and that's a treat for her. For me, it's, it's just bullshit. I've worked in, in fast food restaurants before and, uh, they have, oh God, terrible food. Not to mention it's, uh, not good for you, but anyway, um, so, oh, the reason I bring this, this whole thing up is that, uh, we had a couple of extra bucks this week and, uh, she wanted to go out and for the longest time she's been wanting to go out for breakfast at uh, IHOP you know the pancake place you know I haven't been to an IHOP in, in maybe uh, 25 years so <clears throat> I thought well you know fine whatever we can go to IHOP because I've noticed on uh, on TV commercials now they've They've upgraded their, their menu quite a bit, and they actually have more than just pancakes. So, sure, we get in the car and we go over there the other day, and and I'm looking at the menu, and they, they give us, like, three menus. They've got so much new food, you know, on their menu now that it takes three fucking menus for you to see everything. And uh, I was able to get a... Uh, mushroom and cheese potato thing with uh, onions and uh, scrambled eggs and two flapjacks and uh, I, I have to admit that the meal was just fucking excellent I, I cannot recall having a better meal in a restaurant than I had the other day at IHOP and it was it was so good that I just wanted to sit there until lunchtime so I could do it all again. But we didn't have that much money. So anyway, we had a uh, a good meal at IHOP. So for a restaurant review, I have to give IHOP you know four stars for not only their new menu but their absolutely great food. And I know that's a, that's a plug for, for somebody out there that, uh, you know, the old IHOP restaurants. Yeah, but I can't guarantee that if you go to an IHOP, you'll have the same experience because 
different restaurants are run by different people. You have different people working there, different cooks. So, I mean, you know, it's up to you. But damn, that was a good meal. I'm still thinking about that. Wish I could go back every day, but can't do it. So, reviewing restaurants would be a, kind of a fun thing for me, mostly because I would give bad reviews to almost every place I've ever eaten, but not to IHOP, not this time. Okay, so now I want to talk about uh, Christmas shopping, which is a uh, total disaster. Um, I haven't been to a store or a mall Christmas shopping in over 10 years. If I buy anything for, for the holidays, I, I do it online or... Um, out of a catalog because I figure you can get the same stuff usually cheaper and you don't have to fight with the millions of idiots out there trying to beat the crowd when they are the crowd and you don't have to worry about parking or catching some fucking disease from the people that are coughing and sneezing all over you. And it's just a lot more pleasant and peaceful to do it from the comfort of your own home. Now, that doesn't say much for the, you know, contributing to the local economy, but... I can't help it, man. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not into that anymore. I don't, uh, I don't think I could, I could deal with the, oh, I have trouble with crowds anyway. You know, I haven't been to a goddamn movie theater for probably 15 years or, or, or more. Um, just sitting in a closed room with hundreds of other people. It just terrifies me because <clears throat> you know there are sick people out there in the darkness and they're breathing. They're breathing all the time and coughing and sneezing and picking their nose or picking their ears or whatever they want to pick in the dark. And all of that air is being recirculated around and around and you eventually you breathe it in yourself and uh, don't like it don't like it at all I spent more than 20 years working in hospitals and the amount of disease and sickness that is out there is is unbelievable And people don't care. You know, if they got the flu and they got to go shopping at Walmart or Costco or, or Target or whatever, they're going to go out there and they're going to do it and they're going to spread their fucking disease around to everyone they come in contact with and they don't give a shit. 
fuck. Same thing with kids. You know, parents have kids that are sick. They don't keep them at home. They send them to school, and it spreads throughout the whole classroom. Then the kids come home, and they give it to the parents. Disease is everywhere. Disease is a monster killer. Well, you know, some diseases are killers. It's not. That's not the point. The point is that you don't want to be sick because it's a pain in the fucking ass, especially if you have, you know, stuff coming out of your ass. Oh God. Anyway, ah, dude, I forgot totally what I was going to say, or even what I was talking about. Crowds. That was it. Okay. Crowds. Don't like crowds. Don't like crowds. Don't like to go places where there's lots of people unless it's outside, and even then you got to be careful. So, just a tip, you know, stay away from crowds. I always carry the little bottle of hand sanitizer with me. I know it might might seem like an OCD kind of thing, but like I said, I spent too many years working in hospitals, seen too many sick people, seen how easy. Germs and diseases are spread. So, stay away from crowds, dude. And do that's stay away from crowds. So, moving right along. Actually, we're not moving along that quickly, but moving right along anyway. So yeah,、uh, we were talking about Christmas.、Uh, I come from a、uh, German heritage, and、uh, growing up, when my、uh, mother was married, we would have, you know, the usual Christmas accoutrements: tree and the stockings and the dinner and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> Later on, we—I、uh, don't know why—but we we switched from a From a live tree, a green tree, to the、uh, fucking aluminum trees, you know, doesn't even look like a fucking Christmas tree. Stupid, but hey,、um, I think it's、uh, ridiculous to chop down living trees just so you can have them in your house for two weeks, and then you toss them out later on. You should have a living tree in a pot, and you can use the damn thing several times in the pot in the house for Christmas. And then you can plant the fucker in the backyard or something like that, and have a nice tree, and nothing dies. No trees die for that. Well, that's just my opinion, but Christmas shopping is not something. I get myself involved in anymore. It's just、uh, too crazy out there. It's too many people. It's too many nut jobs. Not to mention the fact that when you're out there shopping, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the the mob, you get these people who have to talk on their cell phone, have to tell everybody what they're doing, calling them up. Giving them prices over the phone, and it's just—it's just annoying. 
And I don't understand how some people can, well, how they feel the need to have conversations with people they're not near while they're doing something else. And it's annoying to everyone else around them. And there's not much you can do about it unless you just pointedly tell them that you're annoying me and that's not going to do any good. It's just not worth the effort to go out there and, and, and try to do something surrounded by a bunch of crazy fucking people that don't know shit from Shinola and don't give a shit about you or anyone else that they happen to be close to. It's just all in their, they're all in their own little world doing their own goddamn thing and it just annoys the hell out of everybody. That, uh, that's another reason I don't like crowds. Most people are assholes. Okay, wait a minute. I gotta go back to the ladies here for just a second. Because I realize that it is just as hard, if not harder, for a woman to find a good man as it is for a guy to find the keeper of a woman. Uh, I mean, women know. Women who have been out there, out there in the field, scouting around, looking for someone that they can form some sort of relationship with. They know how hard it is. And unfortunately, uh, guys out there, if you're going to the bar scene, you know, you can, you can pretty much forget about finding a, a decent man in the bars. It just doesn't happen. One night stands, yeah, no doubt you can find a, one night stand out there, maybe even uh, two or three dates, but uh, that's not where you where you want to look for a, a good man, someone that's going to be true to you and love you for who you are through the good times and bad. Doesn't happen that way. If it does, you're amazingly lucky. But. Uh, I know women, it's hard. I mean, I've been out there and I know what guys do when they're hunting. And uh, that's why guys will usually want to go to the woman's house, you know, rather than their own. Because, you know, A, it's a quick exit. Things don't work right, they're gone after sex they're gone and you if you're lucky you never hear from them again they certainly don't want to take girls to their own crib because they would give the woman too much of an indication about what kind of person they really are guys who uh, you know live on their own are not always, but Jesus, generally they're pigs, okay? You go to a guy's house and 
you'll be lucky if you uh, can stand to be there for any length of time. So <clears throat> it's really hard to find a good man on a first date or a first meeting if you're in a bar. You gotta go somewhere where they have a little more integrity. You know, work is uh, usually a good place to find someone, but you know, company romances are almost always a disaster. But you gotta keep looking, I guess, because somewhere out there you're gonna find someone that's gonna, that's gonna make you happy. Might take two or three tries uh, did for me but if you can find someone who will love you for who you really are not just for what they see on the outside you know and, and what they see in the bedroom if that's what pleases you but <clears throat> person who even with their faults and their curious inclusions if you can find someone who loves you for all of that then uh, you're a lucky person you're a lower guy you just have to keep at it though because it'll come to you eventually and the best of luck to all of those out there looking because it, it, it's a jungle out there but one of those things you just got to keep working at and for me um, well I've been down the road a few times and damn I have had some bad luck had some good luck too but uh, the bad luck those are the ones that always are the hardest to overcome yep okay god damn sorry about that I just drifted off for a second <clears throat> that's not good dead to dead air that's what they call that and it's never a good thing um, just because this suddenly came into my mind I, I wanted to also mention that uh, uh, two and a half years ago I was in a car accident uh, rollover car accident uh, was nearly killed had to uh, be extricated from my car with uh, the jaws of life uh, and was uh, you know went, went, went to the hospital uh, did a CT on me there and uh, discovered that I had uh, broken and crushed ribs one of the ribs punctured my lung so they sent me off to uh, they airlifted me actually to a trauma hospital where I had uh, emergency surgery and then spent uh, several days in intensive care which I, I pretty much don't remember anything about it but uh, it's been a week that hospital and then they sent me over to uh, a rehab hospital where I spent another week 
basically learning how to walk again because both my knees got jacked up so badly. Um, but fuck, I survived that. It was a terrible introduction to the new state I was moving to, but damn, I, 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 I lived through it. And, and here I sit talking to you just like nothing ever happened. <clears throat> well, I seem to have run out of time, so I, I gotta go. But I'll be back in a week or so, and uh, we can do this all again. That sounds like a lot of fun, eh? Well, until then, I, I wish everyone peace and uh, hope your love life is better than it has been. And the best of luck to everyone out there. See you next time. Bye-bye. Rob has self-professed something. <sighs> I am awesome. No. No, the other thing? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I learned something today. Yes, and I said it's important to learn things. I said keeping it fresh uh, is important. Yeah, but I hate to admit that I don't know everything. Well, they already know that. No, they don't. I already know that, obviously. They may not know that. <clears throat> well, Dave obviously doesn't know that because he keeps putting these shows on. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. One of these days, Dave, you're going to learn this lesson. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Our next episode, number one, Seeing Red, the Alpha. I wonder if their last show will be called the Omega. If they stick to uh, to form, it should. Yeah, but they're well. there's not 70-some letters in the Greek alphabet. Oh, it doesn't matter. It matters, dude. No. No, because they're not going alphabetically. You have you have the beginning, yes, and when the end is there, that's the end. Doesn't matter when. That's like saying I found it in the last place I looked. Well, yeah, because if you kept looking, you'd be a moron. Well, yeah, yeah. I have no reason why that was said. I all right. You, you <laughs> said your 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 pointedness was admirable. Yes, the effect was less than yeah. <laughs> Yeah. In this episode from November 26, 2012, the first episode, Dave, Rebecca, embark on the first episode of Seeing Red Sibling Rivalry with Aaron Illich. God, I hope I said that right. As they talk about Rebecca's professional and personal life, as well as Marvel Comics versus DC Comics. Did you, uh, Red is an acronym. I know. I figured that out finally. <laughs> After that episode, Dave texts me and he goes, are you serious? You didn't know what red stood for? It's like, oh, we got to rub it in. Thanks. <laughs> that makes for an excellent joke. It does not. <laughs> <laughs> Yet another proof that I don't know everything. Yep. All right. Let's play uh, the alpha. Yes. See red number one. Here you go. Right now. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm waiting on you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's play. Yeah. Push play, Dave. Anytime. How about now? <laughs> All right, this is old. There you go. Bye. Hit play. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, boys and girls. Welcome to Sibling Rivalry. I'm David K. Montoya. And this is Rebecca C. Lofgren. I'm Aaron Illich. After several hours, we've been able to sit down finally. We had technical difficulty yesterday. We ran this machine for like four hours. And after all the headache, we're here to sit down and give you a show today. Um, I'm here with my co-host, Rebecca C. Lofgren. She is the writer and artist and a renowned poet. 
she is currently the chief operating officer of the MythWorks Corporation, and she's also a featured contributor to the World of Myth magazine. Um, and let's not forget one of the big points. She is also the best-selling author of Book of Dreams, which is still, after almost six years later, hot in Europe. So everybody, welcome. Thank you. Should I have said my middle initial, or let's go with that? No. How the middle initial thing came out is because my name is David Montoya, and there is literally millions of David Montoyas. Yeah, millions. So what I decided to do to identify myself was to put a K in. So when people see my name, David K. Montoya, they automatically think of me. So it's an identifier. With Rebecca, I just kind of did that with her because she she started out with the world of myth, okay? She was an artist for the world of myth, and she just went... Well, first she went with, what, Girl of Myth? Yeah. She did Girl of Myth, and then she did that for like a year or so, and then she changed over and went with RCL, which is her initials, Rebecca Karoloff. Um, she had a big fan following on the world of myth, and... They somehow squished them together. So it was the Girl of Myth RCL. Then at some point, I was like, okay, well, I need to make an identifying mark. And I decided to put the C in there. So Rebecca C. Lofton. So at one point, she had the longest name in the history of the world of myth. It was Rebecca C. Rebecca C. Girl of Myth RCL Lofton. Crazy, right? <laughs> and if anybody that is listening from the old school World of Myth forums, I will honestly say, girl power! Alright, let's get that out of the way. <laughs> so after that, um, she became Rebecca C. Lofgren um, through the World of Myth. Then she, from art, then she went into poetry. Um, and off air, a couple weeks ago, we talked about you know her obscured names. Um, do you know any titles off the top of your head? 60 Degrees, Places I Have Squares, one. Um, if Dying Was As Easy as Bre- oh, I can't remember. What about <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to say, let's, let's just pull it up and take a look at what we got for Google. Um, as I'm doing this, folks, um, you might hear some clicking. That's me getting on the computer here, going to do some Googling. Um, just to throw in my thoughts... Um, virus has always been one of my favorite. Um, what was it? Under the Sun. You guys can go to the World of Myth. That's www.theworldofmyth.com. And if you read Under the Sun, it is one of the absolute best written poems ever, I think. Um, I'll agree with that. I, when I read it, I, I cried like a bitch with a skinned knee. I mean, I was just bawling. <laughs> Under the Sun, Virus, two of my favorite things. Um, let's see. What was that one with uh, Jack the Ripper? That one's called Jack the Ripper Man. Jack the Ripper Man. <laughs> that, that was funny. Yeah. Had to throw a little bit of comedy into all that craziness. And then um, with Book of Dreams. So the very beginning of the Book of Dreams, you had the poetry first or artwork first? Poetry first. And, and the, the artwork. And the artwork. And a short story at the end. Now, what was the short story? Do you remember that? Serial thriller. Tell me something about it. It's basically a story. I think it takes place around Halloween, right? Yeah, and 
it's a girl, like, she's home by herself, and she finds out that, like, a lot of murders have been happening in, around her city, and things get creepier, and the story unfolds, basically, and has a pretty, basically, as the story unfolds, she finds out that things are not as they, they seem. Now, jumping to the actual list of poetry, especially placed in the Book of Dreams, um, we have A Distant Childhood, which was another really good one. Addicted to Blood. Um, Rebecca has been known to be obsessed with vampires. Now, obviously, we're calling this sibling rivalry for the simple fact that Rebecca is my sister. Uh, we're 11 years apart, so I've, I've grown up with her. She's grown up with me, and I've known her obsession with vampires since six or seven years old. So, Addicted to Blood is just another ohm to, to the vampire. Alone is another good one. And before I get into the really complex ones, I, I do have to say that... Well, actually, let me clarify this first. When you came up with these names, you weren't on crack, right? No, I was not on crack. You weren't on speed. I was not on speed. Not depressed. I was not depressed either when I reached out that these are not, like, stories about myself. These are stories that I created about... Fake fictional characters. Okay, so after Alone, then we have Can't Tell You, It's Not Just My Radar That's no. Broken. Can't You Tell, It's Not Just My Radar That's Broken. Oh, my bad. <laughs> then Dying Together is Such Sweet Sorrow. Exit. Folded Vessels Could... Great Each Rainbow. Yep. Forever Free, which is another very good one. From the Basis of My Life. If I, and then this really long one, <laughs> which is, if inconsistency wasn't my friend, my life would be easy as easy breathing. Easy as breathing. Now, now what, were you telling her about these ridiculous long names? He told me not to do this. He's like, please, <laughs> there's no space for these, don't do it, and I did it anyway, because that's just what I do. Um, backstory on that, folks, is... Uh, when we first started out the World of Myth, that was in 2003 or 2004. I think it was four. Four. Um, we had a very select space for things. And most of the time, we would submit stuff under stories and poetry and artwork, and we'd give them titles, but we would have one to two word titles. So I called my sister up and I told her, I said, Rebecca, just make them simple titles. And she's like, yeah, no problem, no problem. And then, you know, she sends me a story, or not a story, but a poetry, and then the title itself was a poem altogether. So I go and I put it into the, the, the world of myth, and it looks like the link, the way the link was set up, looks like you have like seven different poems. But in actuality, it was just one really long title. Let's see. Do you remember anything about Jack? Jack commuted suicide the day he stopped loving me. Do you know anything about that? Do I remember about it? Yeah. I, I really don't. No inspiration or anything? I, when I write poems, like, it's kind of like I'm writing a, a mini story. I don't know. I just start writing and I get, like, little, like a little story in my head. And I try to write it out in a few lines. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how I do my poetry. And here's one. It's another good one, folks. Um, it's uh, justify where their two-way culture collides. 
Yeah, again, she promises she wasn't on crack. I have to take her word for it. Another interesting one, we're just talking title-wise here. I remember I remember because she sent this one into the world of myth. Um, it was called Love's Weekly, W-E-A-K-L-Y, Visit. And I'm like, oh, hell, she just sent me a poem about a period. All right. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that's what I thought. That's, that's, that's what, what I thought. Yeah. <clears throat> but, of course, when you dive into it, you realize quickly that it, it has nothing to do with the... Menstrual cycle. <laughs> yes. Um, <clears throat> some classic ones is rockets rattling this very old air. 60 degrees placed in a square. That's my favorite poem. I love that poem. Do you remember what, it, do you remember what it's about? or? It's just an obscure poem. Let's see. You've got So You Must Let Go, capital G-O. The chest slowly pounds forward. Then here it comes. Another nice long one. Just when you think that we're getting to some easy stuff, <laughs> you know, some one-two liners, then she hits you with, the hottest sun couldn't cloud up my starry eyes and the moonlit smile. Jesus Christ <laughs> in a handbasket. <laughs> right. Leave me alone. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, as we sit here, we joke about the long names. These are some really good stories, like I mentioned earlier. Um, we went through, we were going through a different distribution company, uh, back then to what we're doing now, we have a, a new contract with a much bigger distributor. Um, but back then, we pretty much what, went with what we had, um, and I was able to make a contact contract deal uh, to get this book overseas as well, because it was marketed towards the younger tweens, the teens. Please don't ever say tween again. <laughs> what tween? I don't think any tween should be reading those poems. That's for darn sure. That's the way I market it, folks. Um, anyway, so I was able to go and get it overseas. And while we did sell some good ones here in the United States, uh, good ones I mean as in copies, it just raved in the UK. And, and we could go into the whole legal battle issue, issue just for a minute. I just want to throw out that it's been almost six years since we've published the book and sent it to the UK. And the at-the-time distributor has still yet to to pay up the, the dividends owned on the profits. We're still in the process of a class action lawsuit. So it got kind of messy there overseas. We did get money um, here in the States. But when it came overseas, so far we haven't seen no money. Again, Under the Sun, one of the best poems I think has ever been written. Another one that's really good is When Time Takes a Laugh. That's a good one. Classic is Ye Old Nursery Rhymes. Um, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. You, you, you folks got to read it on this one. Um, and then, of course, it, it goes into the the artwork. And, and the, of course, being a uh, podcast, I can't show the artwork. So, buy the book. Um, www.mythworks.com slash mythmart. Become a member. You can save up to like 50% on that book, okay? So we've got Book of Dreams that came out. So originally it was supposed to be uh, my present to Rebecca for her 18th birthday, which uh, was how many years ago now? Six years ago, 2006. Okay, six years ago for you, a year ago for you. 
Um, and, and for the listeners out there, I should say that Aaron is Rebecca's... Where are we at? Boyfriend, fiancé, buddy, where, where are we at? Soon to be fiancé. Okay. Um, so, soon to be fiancé, they shack up together. <laughs> <laughs> Make us both feel embarrassed. <laughs> so, again... That's who Mr. Aaron is. He's, he's right shotgun with Rebecca. Anyway, uh, six years ago, I went put out the book for Rebecca as a birthday present. That was the initial thing about it. As I was putting the book together, I was like, oh, I can make money off this. So I went got a hold of Terry D. Shear, which you folks will meet on Friday. He is our editor-in-chief and currently chief operating officer of MythWorks Corporation. We sat and we talked and he agreed. Um, and so not only did we produce this book for Rebecca for her birthday, but we also pushed it to make a profit. So that was August 2006. Then, But during that time in 2006, you weren't in California, right? No, I wasn't. Where were you at? I was in Arizona. Doing... I was going to film school. Okay, so the plot thickens, folks. She was in Arizona going to film school. Now, was it for producing? Did you want to be a director? It was for cinematography, which is which is basically a director. Or you could operate the camera. I mean, there's a lot of things you could do, could have done with it. So, like, director of photography kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, you could branch up. From that, you could turn into many different things. That, I, I won't lie, folks. When I heard that, I was shitting myself. I, I would love, love to go to film school. And the funny thing is, is, is a couple times that I talked to her while she was out in Arizona, she was like, they're not teaching me shit. I already know most of this. And what did you say that you learned, the main thing that you learned? How to use Photoshop. So there you have it, folks. Go to a high-priced film school. $30,000 to learn how to use Photoshop. Basically, and then as the process, she she got done with that. Uh, we we did have a death in the family, which caused her to come back premature. But then I was going to have her be my DP in a, a film that we were in the process of putting together named Body Bag. That that would have been just great because I I trust my sister and I, I trust her her understanding in the interpretation of what I wrote because I co-wrote the script with uh, a gentleman that looks much like Aaron. This is a lie. Nobody believe this. He's lying to you. It's not true. He does. He does not. I'll put up a a picture of both the gentlemen. No, we need to put up a poll. A poll. A poll. Does he look like him or not? (laughs) Okay, there we have it. We will find a space. We will put a poll and find out how many people feel that Aaron looks like uh, Alan Russo. Russo, if you're out there, brother, I'm waiting. I want to do a podcast with you. Give me a call, all right? So after the process, we go, we end up canceling Body Bag. So what happens then? Do you go back into writing? What What happens at 2008? Where do you go? I think in 2008, I started drawing a lot more. What type of style? Was it because I remember, okay, let me, let me back up and tell the backstory, folks. Again, I, I mentioned this earlier. I have grown up with Rebecca. I'm 11 years older. And the the writing, the comics, the anime, the drawing is a direct influence from yours truly. And at and one video. point... And the video games. Yeah. Yeah, and the video games. 
But at one point, uh, when Rebecca was very young, you put my artwork next to her artwork, and it was almost identical. But as she got older, she started to find her own creative identity. And I want to say, was it was it the anime first? I I started drawing a lot of anime, but I want to say that it was like in 2006 when I started to draw a lot of anime. I stopped drawing for a while, and then I came back to drawing, and I think I was going more like towards like realistic. Still life. Still life, yeah, realistic drawing. And what year was that? I think it was 2008, no. Yeah. 2008. The end of 2008, when I started drawing. So 2008, 2009. Yeah. Okay, so we're at 2009. You're a published author. You're a published poet on magazine. You're a vice president at this point of a corporation. What else? What else is there? I mean, you've gone to film school. Oh, and may I add, because we, we accidentally overlooked this, she also scripted. The book hasn't been released. Actually, it's a graphic novel. Um, it was plotted and drawn by William Slim Black. Uh, Rebecca put in the dialogue for the first couple of, of issues. So she's also a comic book writer, too. So... As we roll into 2010, she becomes the chief creative officer of the then Dark Myth Production Studios. And if you guys get confused, come follow me on Who's the Boss on Wednesday, and I'll explain the difference between Dark Myth Production Studios and MythWorks Corporation. So we start out 2010. It was still Dark Myth Production Studios. Um, chief, um, chief creative officer. I'm saying I'm too much. I'm sorry. Chief Creative Officer, you essentially put together the idea and helped in purchasing the GISG Heavenly Publication. From that, where where do you go? What what have you been doing creatively since? Because that took almost a year. Because we purchased GISG in 2011. I know there was a work up to it. So, from 2011 to 2012, where have you been creative? I know you, you produced more poetry and artwork in the world of myth. Yeah. You became the assistant editor to the Woman Myth magazine for a, a few issues. Yeah, correct. Um, and I, I will say openly on air, we did have a falling out. She got pissed at me, I got pissed at her, and then she got even more pissed at me because I was already pissed at her. So we actually stopped talking for four months. No, it was like six months. Was it six months? It was like six months. Oh, shit. Yeah, because when, when I met her, you guys weren't talking at all. Right. So... And, and then, and I will go ahead and say this on air. Uh, Rebecca texts me via cell phone, obviously, um, and apologized. And, and I, I felt that that was a big move. That was a big adult move for Rebecca because that took a lot. Because I know she does. I, I do not like to apologize to people. And, and I was going to say is I know she doesn't feel that she's in the wrong, but she's mature enough <laughs> to say... That she's sorry because she knows that her her brother's such an asshole that I could probably go on without talking. Yeah, probably could. And so she threw it out there and she said she was sorry. I you know welcome back, open arms, um, and we've been going you know now with the podcast and the myth works and everything. We're back in the role. So did you take a creative break during that time? I had a lot of. Like, I guess, writer's block, I guess you could say. I wasn't really doing much creatively. I don't know. I think I was just basically moping around playing video games. I, I, I think I know why you were doing 
that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a little serious turn here. I want to give Rebecca an opportunity to clear up the air. Um, she was with the gentleman, um, his name was Chris, for how many years? Four years. And while we weren't speaking, uh, that relationship uh, ended. And uh, there was some pretty nasty comments being made, rumors and whatnot. And um, I just wanted to give Rebecca an opportunity to clear up the air. Um, so go ahead, be completely honest. So my question is, is what happened? Why did the relationship fall apart? Well, I'll go back to the beginning. Basically, when the first year we were together, I first met him, he was a completely different person than what he, what I found out that he really was to be. And in the second year of relationship, we decided to move in together, and slowly from there, things went downhill. And I tried for three, for those three years to make it work, to make it what I thought it should be. Like, I was in denial, you know, but... Basically, for the the four years we were together, he cheated on me. I'm just gonna say it. Basically, he did. I'm not gonna say. I'm not gonna go in detail on that. But yeah, and I finally had enough of him. I finally wasn't putting up with it anymore, and I told him I didn't want to be with him anymore. And he didn't tell anybody this. And when people found out that I had a new boyfriend after we broke up, they assumed I was cheating on him, but I wasn't. Now, also for the record. He did not want to leave, right? He did not want to leave. So he was sticking around the house. You guys were officially broken up. separated. Yeah, broken up. Um, and then you moved on. It's not that I moved on. I wasn't looking for a boyfriend. I wasn't trying to find anybody else. But it just happened. It's something that I didn't plan to happen. I didn't try to find. It just ended up happening. And he didn't want to, like you said, he didn't want to leave the house and... He said he wanted to be with me, but yet he didn't show that yeah, by the way he treated me. Treat like, he treated me horribly. I mean, one minute he was telling me that he loved me, the next minute he was cussing me out. So I didn't understand why he was there. Going on from from that, just saying when you two weren't talking, and after all this went down, and uh, Chris had finally left because uh, me and Rebecca here had met, and she was like. We were both breathtaking by finding each other. Like, we, we, we never planned for this to happen, like she said. Um, it just happened. It wasn't like we were looking for anybody. We were just... Shit happened. Yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were bored one day, so we just started talking. And we, yeah. All right, folks. I'm just going to drop one question, one serious question, and then we can get back to the fun. Like I said, I just want to clear the air because I know friends and family will be listening to this. So I'm just going to come out and ask the question, and then we're moving on to the fun shit, okay? My question is, straight across the board, were you having an affair? Yes or no? No, I was not. There we have it. Um, coming off of that, I feel like I was sort of a bit of an inspiration, because one of the days that we come home, she'd been wanting me to see this book that she made, and she couldn't find her copy, so... We looked it up on her, her phone. Why Believe it or not. And <laughs> she she was she was bawling. She was like, I miss my brother so much. Oh god, why do you have to embarrass me? Shut up. I'm not I'm not trying to embarrass you. It's it's good to feel about family that way. Like I, I miss my brother so much. And you know, I, I wish that none of this have ever happened. Because I really love my brother. 
And so I feel like I have a bit of an inspiration for wanting to talk to her brother. Inspiration or influence? Influence. Influence. There you go. Alright, well I've been pretty much souping up Rebecca for almost a half an hour now. Do you guys have any questions for me? Um, I, <laughs> from her talking about you on Insight and, and doing all these different things, how, how exactly did you get this started? Like what, what made you want to do this? For the Jaisalmon? For the podcast. Jaisalmon. Okay, let me back up. Uh, a few months ago, I started a non-profit organization called Jaisalmon Publications. Or not, it wasn't publications, it was productions. Um, Jaisalmon is a combination of my son's name. His name is Jaden. My daughter's name is Zoe. And our last name, obviously, is Montoya. Um, I sliced them up, put them together, and got Jaisalmon. Um, I started putting out three publications because for 20 years... I've been the CEO of MythWorks, and though this is Jay Zoman, folks, I will talk a lot about MythWorks because I'm as heavily involved with MythWorks than I am with Jay Zoman. Um, I am the CEO. I am the co-owner of the company. I own 65%. Um, but I, but that company went from me wanting to produce my own comic books into the early part of 2000 where I became the publisher and I started publishing other people's books. Um, within that time, my name has been in print four times. Um, you will find my name in print in the World of Myth Anthology, Volume 1. I had two stories in there. The World of Myth Anthology, Volume 2, I have one story. I came out with a comic book called A Yelp Gnome, which I wrote and created. Um, and then the last time my name was in print was another comic book called Sergeant Iron, which again I, I wrote and created. Um, and I, I felt that I was doing myself an injustice because I was more of a businessman. I mean, if you go and Google my name on Google, you will find me in press releases being the CEO and president and publisher and this and that. All business you know, stuff. Uh, very, if, if you really get in there and dig around, you might actually find something that says that I'm a writer. Um, and Jaisalmon was my way of saying, okay, you know what? Myth works can be for everybody else, but Jaisalmon is for me. Um, so Jaisalmon originally started as Jaisalmon Publications, where you know they, I wanted people to come. I, you go to my Twitter account, at David K. Montoya, um, and you follow me, and you get a chance to download three stories. Um, and that's how it started. And how the Jaisal Modcast came to be is, is I'm busy, you know, and, and off the air just a second ago, we were talking, and I said, tomorrow, you know, I'm going to be doing 24-plus hours shift. Well, not shift, but a day. You know, so there's not a really much time for me to talk with my sister or, you know, my best friend Terry or, you know, another good friend of mine, Sadie Burbank. And I came up with the idea because I am a big fan of uh, the Smodcast show. And I was like, well, what if I go and I start a, a podcast and bring these people to my place? Because that's where we're at right now. We're in fabulous Apple Valley, California <laughs> at my home. Um, 
and you know sit down and talk for at least an hour. That's how the, the Jazel Modcast came to be. It's, just, it's simply for nothing more. I mean, the financial part kind of followed, but the initial idea itself was to sit down and talk to my friends. That's all this was about. I mean, and, and you folks, I know you can't see the setup right now. Um, you know, I've got a computer. We got a ghetto rig, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's pretty thoroughly thought out, but it's ghetto rigged. <laughs> if anybody knows what that means. Um, I, I won't try to take that as an insult as much as I just... It's an insult by any means. It's not, because I ghetto rig a lot of my electronics. Rebecca knows this firsthand. Yes, he does. So that's that's pretty much how it came about. Uh, it, it's Again, I know I've said this out loud before, and it sounds really conceited. Jaselmon is essentially about me and what I want. Jazel Modcast is me sitting down with my sister. You're with my sister, so you, you right? Um, and and that's it. I mean, we started off in the beginning of the show talking about the book, um, and then you know segue into a little bit of, of what we just talked about with the relationship. Um, you know, who knows? Who knows what next episode will hold? We might talk about, like I was saying before we started recording, you know, outhouses versus toilets, you know, or, you know, dry, dry toilet paper versus wet toilet paper. We don't know. It, it's, it's just to sit down and have a conversation, um, to hear each other's voice and to, to kind of keep a connection because that was one of the problems I think that might have happened with, this follow-up that we had, you know, some months back, is there was a lack of lack of communication. And if you come over to my place once a week and, and you know what I'm up on, I know what you're up on. There's no miscommunication. And plus, I'm having a ball. I mean, as you guys probably can hear, I'm losing my voice because, coincidentally, right before I started recording this cast with Rebecca, um, I just finished recording the win in, ba- win in Burbank with S80 Burbank. So my voice is literally starting to go out. Um, hopefully as time goes on, I'll be able to maintain more of a steady voice. Uh, this is fairly new to me. I really don't talk that much as, you know, maybe my, my wife or my sister might say. But I really don't. Um, so... That's the whole idea between or behind uh, the Jaisal Mon uh, Modcast. So hopefully you guys out there will enjoy our show enough to continue to come in week after week. We are setting up for an iTunes download. Um, and I'm also in the midst of talking with Amazon. I would like for Amazon to carry the podcast as well uh, you know, for the Kindle devices. And if you guys show enough love, I might actually even get a hold of uh, Pandora because I know they host podcasting shows as well. Um, but baby steps as far as business, um, I try not to talk. I'm going to try not to talk about business other than who's the boss when it comes out Wednesday nights. Um, so at this point, we've cleared up the air. We've made some jokes. What What's next? What's... What's next for Rebecca? Next for me? Yeah. Well, I was hoping sometime next year to start my second book. Do you have a title? Requ- I can't remember how to say this, but you, you, you tell them for me. I'll let you do it. 
All right. Yes, this was a little pre-scripted, folks. Um, the book name is Requiem of a Dream. It's the follow-up to Book of Dreams. Um, now, this part I don't know. Um, are you going to have the same setup? Are you going to have poetry, artwork, stories, or just straight poetry? Story? How are you going to put it together? I want, for this one, I want to make a, a, a piece of artwork for every poem. So, like, there'll be a poem and then a piece of artwork for the poem. The match. I want to set that up, and then I'd like to have a story in the back. Like a... I don't want to say, like, a novel in the back, but I want it to be a little longer than, like, a short story. Maybe a novelette. Yeah, a novelette in the back of the book. But I don't plan on working on that till next year when I have a lot more time than what I have now. Definitely, you know, they're the publisher in hand. Like I was saying earlier, I'm not dropping no names. I... But we did sign a big contract with the new printer distribution center. Um, so I can definitely do that. I mean, regardless if you're my sister or not, I can do that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to turn my attention to Aaron for a second. Because he's been sitting over here, folks. and he's, he's, he's putting I'm enjoying in, myself. He's putting in his two cents <laughs> here and there. But we really don't know too much about it. And since this is the first podcast, let's find out who Rebecca's new hitch is. So, Mr. Aaron, you can go ahead and turn the mic towards you or you can bend over towards it. Um, tell me about yourself, how old you are. Of course, that's the big oh, Let's see, let's see. There's a lot, a lot of controversy following this issue of my age, since I am, of course, younger than Rebecca, and I am younger than her ex. Okay, stop beating around the bushes. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm 19 years of age. Um, When's your birthday? My birthday is May 27th, 1993. And you are from, coincidentally... Las Vegas, Nevada. Which is also the home of MythWorks. Just have to throw that in there. Um, so what do you do, man? What, what's your thing? You write, you draw. Well, I can't say that I that I write, but a lot of the times when I, I get... It's going to sound a little bit quirky, but I feel uh, a lot of emotion. Sometimes I, I, I go and... Uh, ran in my head of like dark poetry. Why don't you write that on paper? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't. Uh, this is just not me. Like, I'm not used to writing poetry. I used to do that a lot, but that was because you know. Really fast off subject. I have to say that just to embarrass him a little bit. That what two or three weeks ago? Don't even do it. <laughs> It's recording. It's already going. Ago, I wrote him a poem and I made him cry, and it was really cute. Well, the only time that, and I'll be honest, the only times I'm ever emotional is when I'm around somebody that I love, and I love Rebecca until the day I die, and, you know, that's just, that's just the way things are, and so when I was younger, and, you know, I was stupid, and I was a teen teen, not like a grown-up Oh, not teen. 90, not no. 19, <laughs> no, like a teen, like a tween-ish teen. Yeah. Okay, I was depressed a lot because I wasn't happy with my, I wasn't happy with the way things were going. You know, I, I used to write a lot of, like, dark, depressed uh, poems, and then I'd go in and, you know, I'd read these things when, when I wasn't depressed, and then I'd be upset with myself, because why would I let myself do that to myself? But they were really good, and I wish I would have had some of them, <laughs> like, show you guys, but. Well, let me tell you something, brother. If you're going to be part of this family, you write. Okay? You write. I make the book. 
turn a buck. That's that's just how the family dynamics run. Oh, I know. She's seen some of the poetry. He's creative. He's creative. He just he. I, his problem is like he spent so much of his like life recently with video games. For all his creativity went into it's video games. Like all his effort. Let let me just reiterate something because she said life. Okay. He's 19. I've been writing for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, what what I really want to do, since music is really my passion, I love all types of music. It doesn't. I don't really have a specific genre that I like per se. And I'm, since I'm really good with electronics, and I used to play guitar, I'm gonna mention that now <laughs> because one of our uh, little discussions we've had earlier. Uh, anyway, uh, I want to go to school for audio production. I want to be a DJ. Um, I'm going to make that happen, but as of right now, since I've made a lot of dumb choices in my life, <laughs> I'm not going to get into any details. Yeah, my short life, yes. Um, I made a lot of dumb choices, and I need to go back and fix those before I can do anything else. Um, this is the first time I've been away from my family since I've always lived with my family all my life my mom my grandma um I've lived with them and this is the first time <laughs> I've ever really been outside of Las Vegas and you know I, I can't say that I've been sheltered cause I haven't been sheltered um I chose to stay inside for a big portion of my life <laughs> so he's a hermit well, can, coincidentally, I can actually follow you because I was 19. Okay, I was born, raised, bred in California, Southern Cal. Yeah. 19, I was already married. And we moved from California to Arkansas. So I actually feel you on that because I know how it is because the only dude out there was my biological dad. Um, you know, so at least I had somebody out there. But... Everybody was back away. And now, if, if I'm saying this wrong or if I'm misinterpreting, tell me right off the bat. But for me, when I was back then, you know, 19 years old in another state, it felt like here's my opportunity to grow that's up, exactly to become I, a man, and start my life. I was like, you know, I, I feel like I can, I can really make a difference in my life since I'm away from that atmosphere. Um, I mean, yeah, I love my family. I really do. You know, it's heartbreaking to leave them like that. I mean, I'm not really leaving them, but it's since I've always been with them all my life. Well, you got Facebook. Yeah. Always Facebook. <laughs> Good communication. Another note, folks. When I was 19, I don't think there was any internet. Um, really fast, I just want to tell people this. If you're from California, this is totally off subject. If you're from California, never go to Arkansas. Thank you. That's, it. That's all I have to say about that. It's like hell. I'm telling you this now. Um, anyway. Back to what I was saying. <laughs> uh, since I moved out here, you know, I told her I, I want to make a difference. Um, there's a lot of stuff in my life that I need Up, oh, I got a phone call. Hold that. Uh, we'll be right back, folks. And now, a word from our sponsors. Before 1971, a young S. Sadie Burbank could only imagine a simple American life as a loving wife and mother. That was her goal when she first married in 1959 at the age of 18, but with the wild social revolution of the 1960s, Burbank's idea of a perfect life would quickly change as she left behind her family to begin a new existence of her own. 
Her journey would find her on a plane headed toward her new lover, Steve, who was halfway across the world, waiting her arrival in a small bush camp in the country of Liberia. Once there, Sadie is greeted with a fascinating, strange world and plunges herself into the exotic land of the bush. But less than six months later, Sadie would realize all was not as it seemed, and Steve was not the man she fell in love with. Burbank found herself desperately seeking escape from the camp and her lover as she raced back to Robertsfield Airport, literally running for her life. Based on an unbelievably true story by S. Sadie Burbank, Red Hills, Green Vines, and Dried Monkey Meat for Dinner is a manuscript of Burbank's adventurous and deadly experience during a time filled with sex, drugs, and murder. Now available in paperback and hardback. For more information, log into www.redhills.us. Are you looking for a new book, comic, or apparel from your favorite MythWorks or independent creators? Then you're in the right place. Introducing the all-new redesigned MythMart store. Now bigger, badder, better. Sign up and become a member and receive 10 to 50% off on selected items. Get the all-new Terry D. Shearer's Bloody Hell t-shirt, or non-members can pick up one of our e-books for only $4.95. Or go into the past and relive the 90s with MythWorks Comics Classics for $3.99. The new MythMart. Bigger, badder, better. Visit MythMart at www.mythworks.com slash MythMart. Or find us on Facebook for extra savings. Do you own a business or have an item you want to sling? Do you want a chance to reach potential customers? Do you want to make some extra cash? Then here's your chance. For $50, you can have a one to two minute commercial featured on each of our shows for an entire month. With six shows a week, that's only $2.09 per podcast. Plus, for an extra 10 bucks, your item will be placed into MythMart. So sit back and relax as they handle all stages of transactions. Contact our ad department at info at jaysamon.com. Welcome back. Thanks to the miracle of digital technology, uh, I'm finished with my phone call and we are back on. Um, as Aaron was talking about things he wanted to do, one of the things I wanted to jump in and, and say real fast is that I also have plans for the youngster um, because he does want to get into recording and mixing. Um, I'm, I'm here publicly offering him an opportunity for me to show him, to teach him how to do digital editing, and he could be the Jaisal Modcast editor. Um, so throw that out, think about it. You know. Why would I reject? <laughs> That's well, a good opportunity for both of us, actually. Because it's going to require a lot of work. That's yeah. true. He doesn't do anything, so he'll be fine. Just the things you ask him. <laughs> so at this point folks uh, we've covered the book 
Um, we've covered Rebecca's personal life. Covered a bit of mine. Just <laughs> um, um, a little bit. So this is, again, a little bit of introduction. Um, is there anything, and I'm, I'm asking this on air, is this anything that you can think of that you want to talk about? I say we should talk about things of interest, <laughs> like comics, <laughs> Marvel vs. DC. Oh, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> now, now, mind you, folks, we're at the the forty five minute mark. We're not sure where we'll be at after the editing, but um, technically, we have fifteen minutes, and he just opened up a five hour discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that'll be good. Um, and I can say this for both Rebecca and I: we are X Men fans, um, hardcore X Men fans. Old school to the nineties, mm-hmm. Marvel. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, um, you know, they had all the top creators. They had good stories. Eighties really plunged into good storytelling. Nineties just took it a little bit higher. Yeah. They, they pushed the, the limits. Um, unfortunately, and this is just my opinion. Rebecca can jump in if she disagrees. But and when, when it hit like two thousand, two thousand one. Comic books kind of fell off. Yeah, well, not just comic books. Yeah, Marvel comic books, they fell off, and DC started to gain more popularity. And coincidentally, folks, uh, one thing I just recently found out is they hired uh, a lot of people that used to work with Marvel Comics over to DC back in the 90s. Uh, you know, we're talking Bob Harris, who, in my opinion, was one of the best editor-in-chiefs. Um, I damn near pissed myself when I found out they hired Scott Liddell back. Scott Liddell wrote I don't know how many X-Men comic books. I was in high school reading his stuff, and when I heard that he's coming over to DC, he's going to start doing comic books again, like I said, I damn near pissed myself. Really stoked about it. Um, So, from the... but, And I guess that's when I kind of fell out of reading comics, between 2001 to say about 2007 I really stopped I, I went back and bought the back issue shitload of collection comments. oh yeah I weighed like 500 pounds but I, I really stopped reading because at that point for me I really didn't care for what they were doing neither on the board of uh, DC or Marvel recently like I said DC stepped up their game you know, they're, they're coming out, they're revamping all their stuff, and I think they're, they're turning out a better product. They are, for what, real. What well, killed it for me, really, is when, and I don't want to say this guy's name now. Grant Morrison. So there you go. When Grant Morrison started writing X-Men, I think I just about died. Like, he was horrid. Horrid writer, I hate him, I wish he was never born. He ruined it, like, ugh. And I know I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail for Um... Coincidentally, he's really popular. But I totally agree with you. Um, changing people's sexual preferences 40 years into the game, not cool, dude. Um, and I agree. I, I, I read some of the stuff, and, and he was trying to be groundbreaking, but, and again, my opinion, he just he flopped. Um, I don't know. As far as X-Men-wise... The god of X-Men, and I'm not even talking Stanley. The god of X-Men is Chris Claremont. Yes, he is. 
he's he actually started me in my writing. Um, somewhere along the lines, I was talking about him publicly, and I actually mentioned if it wasn't for Christopher Claremont, who wrote the X Men for 16 years, I probably he was that influential. Stanley, the Godfather. Yeah, the Godfather. The Godfather. Um, you know, the man came in back in what 1960s. There was a lot of flat storytelling. Good guys were the bad guys. There was no backstory. There was yeah. no drama. There was no character development. He's the dude that came in and brought all this to par. You know, he's the one who he created Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, the X-Men, the Incredible Hulk, the Avengers. Um, let's see. Uh, Black Panther, Daredevil. I literally, guys, this this dude created the almost the entire Marvel universe, uh, except maybe that I can pull off the top of my head. Submariner uh, was done by Bill Everett. Submariner. Submariner. I think you said Submariner. 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 Is it Submariner? I think it's it? Submariner. It's the uh, correct pronunciation. Um, well, he was he was created by Bill Everett back in the 1930s. Um, Captain America um, was Jack Kirby and Joe Schuster. Schuster? I'm sorry if I pronounced his name wrong. Um, and then the Human Torch, coincidentally, was an android. It wasn't Johnny Storm. Yeah. And, and uh, the very first issue of Marvel Comics, was the oh really? Movie. I didn't know that. So other than those three characters, that I, I that's the only ones I think off the top of my head. But everybody else, up to a point until you know, we get into like the nineties, uh, Stanley Lee. Yeah. yeah. Um. That. That was. Uh, For me, it's not just like I like one. Uh, I don't. I don't just like Marvel or DC. Like, to me, I, I wasn't very much of an avid comic book, you know. <laughs> anyway. You were an, an avid comic book reader because I couldn't ever get my hands on comic books. All the comic books that I had were basically handed to me because my dad, you know, he was a big fan of Thor. And I used to read a lot of Thor and, like, a lot of Spawn. Uh, and then that got me into, like, dark, like, gothic-type things. Like, uh, I like Spawn. Dark Horse comics, I think, awesome. Um, well, just comics in general. They, I like the style of artwork that people put into... Because it's not just a story. It's a movie on paper, you know. Who's your favorite character? My favorite character? Straight, Straight across the border. My favorite character is Spawn. <laughs> is Spawn. Your favorite character? Well, I have a few, but... <laughs> my favorite all-time character? Ever? There's two of them, though. I don't know. Okay. My, fa- my two favorite characters ever have to be the Dark Phoenix and Jubilee. <laughs> That's interesting because she brings up... I knew she was going to say Jubilee. Uh, she's got pets. <laughs> yes, but the the interesting thing is, is I knew that she's she's been a friend, a fan of Jean Grey from the get go. But why the dark? I just like I don't know. 
I just like, like, I she seems so much more badass when she's a dark phoenix. Like, when she's just Jean Grey, she, I mean, yeah, she's tele, she has telekinesis and all that, but in the X-Men world, that's nothing, you know, <laughs> doesn't make you special. But as a dark phoenix, I just think she's so much more badass, more something to be afraid of. I like, I just I like it. I think it's the mentality that she has when she's the dark phoenix is what attracts you, in my opinion. Because it's not just a character going from, like, a change. You know, it's it's like a... a whole like different a, person. It's like a metamorphosis into a completely different person. Well, yeah, you've got, you know, Jean Grey Phoenix, you know, save the world. And then you've got Dark Phoenix, who's like, I'll eat the fucking world. Well, yeah, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Um, you don't know. You already know. My favorite character is Cyclops. We love, um, we love Cyclops. And let me go on uh, on record and say I'm talking Cyclops from 2001 to 1963. That's the Cyclops I like. I, I I've only heard about different Cyclops versions um, and how they've changed them because I've always been fascinated because of how smart he is. And they, and they ever said that it was his mutant ability. They just said the guy was fucking smart. Yeah. And. And that always intrigued me because he could think on his toes. You know, you've got X amount of people that you're responsible for their lives, and he had to make the decisions. Good, by, good, bad, or indifferent, he made the decision. decisions. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Real fast, I want to say something. Okay, go for it. You, you have to tell him what's one of the first. Why we started talking about comic books when we first started talking to each other. What's one of the first things I asked you? Do you remember this? I. What I, I asked him what he thought of Wolverine. I had to know this because if, if, right, if, if he said the wrong answer, the relationship would have never been. <laughs> it never would have been. I told her. This is almost exactly what I told her. I was like, I'm not a very big fan of Wolverine. Like, sure, there are some instances where, you know, he's actually cool. To me, is after he got the adamantium torn out of his body. But he, he wasn't like, oh, I love him. I would have been like, okay, no. we can't talk anymore. It's over. Uh, absolutely not. Spawn is by far my all-time favorite concert. yeah but you you don't understand how dire that question was like it saved, it saved your life <laughs> that was almost a hard one. <laughs> um i'm not a big wolverine fan oh i hate yeah, him yeah. He, you know what fast to me like wolverine is like the new york yankees like everybody likes him just everybody likes him just because he is what he is like and i hate i hate that like i hate it and like People are probably going to really send you hate mail for me saying that, but that's just how I feel about it. <laughs> um, I'm not a big fan of Wolverine. I, I agree with you. There's some cool things that he did. But I was actually in 11th and 12th grade when they pulled his adamantium out. Yeah. I was... Okay. Mom, <laughs> if you're listening to this, I, I'm spilling the beans. Okay. I knew that that book was still was X-Men 25. I knew it was coming out. I knew something big was happening. Because of the rumble. I purposely ditched school. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to the comic book shop to get my, my copy of X-Men 25. I didn't read it until I literally, from the comic book shop to the high school, I walked back to high school. I remember I'm sitting in psychology class. I got the comic book in between my psychology book and I'm reading it, right? And then I see Magneto rip out the adamantium. I'm like, yeah! <laughs> yeah! <laughs> and, and 
and everybody just kind of looked at me. I was like, good speech, good speech. <laughs> In reality, I was like so excited that they did that to Wolverine. I don't know. Sorry, Wolverine lovers. You know, my heart goes out to you, but it's not in this house, <laughs> So, guess what, folks? We're we're done for this first episode of Sibling Rivalry. So, I'm David K. Montoya. I'm Rebecca C. Lofgren. I'm Aaron Nowich. And remember, there isn't a rivalry better than Sibling Rivalry. See y'all next time. So, are you a Marvel guy or a DC guy? I'm a Marvel guy. And it's interesting how Rebecca's personal life reflects Marvel. That's a stab. Well, you know, she did get her personal life in there and then was talking about comics. Ah, uh, okay. So I'm just trying to make a connection. I see that. Yes. Yeah, I'm just going to say I'm a Marvel guy. Yes, I'm a Marvel guy too. <laughs> Let's just I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to uh, try and mix and mix somebody's uh, personal and emotional well-being in with a... Uh, she brought her personal life into it. Hey, you said, why, are you, why are you hating? I'm not hating. I think it's awesome. Because then technically, if you combine it with the comic world, that makes her like a superhero. Well, you could do that. You're not going to get anything out of it. but uh. Oh, well, then screw it. Yeah. All right. When <laughs> in Burbank, number one is our last episode. <laughs> last episode? For this episode. Last. Okay. You with me? No. No? <laughs> this one's called Red Hills, Green Vines, Dried Monkey Meat for Dinner, and the 1960s. Oh, that's the name of her book. Dried monkey meat for dinner? The whole thing. The whole... Oh, that whole title? The whole title. Wow. So what's it about? Uh, It's Sadie's um, memoirs, I guess. Oh, okay. For for lack of a better term. Which explains the episode. This is from November 27th, 2012. Dave hears harrowing tales of freedom, liberation, and life from S. Sadie Burbank in the 1960s and 70s in the first episode of When in Burbank. Mm -hmm. So this is probably like the precursor that, you know, made her want to put this down on paper. Or... Adventures like that. PDF. PDF. Well, yeah, because maybe it's an electronic book. Well, maybe. You know? No, but I said adventures like that needs to be documented somehow. <sighs> Document my life. <laughs> <laughs> because people... It, it play. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Here's Wen in Burbank number one. Welcome to Wen in Burbank. I'm Dave Montoya. And I'm Miss Sadie Burbank. Tonight, I want to talk about Sadie's first novel, a nonfiction tale about her experience in 1971 while living in Liberia. The book, Red Hills, Green Vines, and Dried Monkey Meat for Dinner, was released last year in 2011 by Luna Press. Sadie, welcome. Thank you. Can you tell us a little something about your book? Oh, Lord. <laughs> a little something about my book. It took a long time to write. How long did it take? About a year and a half. Almost two years, actually, from start to finish. And how many pages total? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> 200 and something? I don't know. Wait a minute. Uh... Counting the end pictures, 261 or two, 262. So in a year and a half, you wrote 262 pages. How long? Wrote and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. Yeah. That's what I'm going to ask is the first draft. How long would you write the first draft? I didn't actually write a first draft of the whole book. Uh, I What I did was I just sat down and started telling the story as it happened to me and each uh, 
chapter, if you will, um, covered a period of time from the time I left Los Angeles several situations there um, in San Diego area until I got to Liberia. So each each chapter got rewritten and rewritten and rewritten until it correctly felt oh, that's not the right word until I could make it feel the way it felt then. So the readers could identify with you. Exactly, yeah. And so, I, but because I, I couldn't have just sat down and written the whole thing. Um, actually relived the whole experience while I was writing. And it was sometimes painful, sometimes uh, time-consuming to express some of the feelings that I had then and to and to remember what went on. This is a long time back. Uh, and if it hadn't have been for the fact that my mother had saved a couple of the letters that I mailed to her from... Liberia when I was there, uh, there wouldn't have been as many details in, in the book as there are, but a lot of the details that are in the book, I took from those letters, because it was stuff I'd forgotten. You know, like, I, re- I wrote her this whole letter one time about how much everything cost there, because at the time it was interesting to sh- both of us. She was interested and I was interested. Of course, these days, those prices would seem quite reasonable, but in those days, they were not. In all the food for example, in Liberia that we bought in the stores, everything was imported. The, the country at the time did not have a national product, per se. Uh, they didn't have anything that, that you could buy there that was grown there. I mean, they did have, but very, very little. You couldn't get any lettuce, for example. Nobody had lettuce. Restaurants had lettuce. I don't know where they got it, but they had lettuce. But you could, I couldn't go out and buy lettuce. Could buy bacon. How to buy bacon in a can? You know, stuff like that. Mother found that interesting, and I knew she would. So I would write to her letters about it, and she saved them. So when I started trying to include those kinds of details in the story, I referred to uh, the letters, and it really helped me a lot because I I didn't realize how much I'd forgotten over the years. Well, that, and also I, I've seen the picture myself. How much did the picture? A lot, a lot. Um, some of those pictures, when I sit there and, and I, when I sit and look at those pictures, I feel like I'm there where I was when I took those pictures. And it, it, um, it, it put me back there. Which, like I said, sometimes that was painful. Sometimes it was not. Sometimes because there were. A lot of times when I had a really great time there, I loved the Liberian people and I loved meeting the Liberian people and sharing time with them. And those memories were brought back by the pictures. And how long was that? Oh, let's see, July to October, went back home for my son's birthday, came back, and then finally left in December. Okay, out of 33 chapters, yes, I went through the book. Good, because I wouldn't remember either. So out of 33 chapters, is there one specific chapter that really stands out, that really, for lack of a better term, your favorite chapter? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me something like that. 
basically what you're asking me is, was there a time that I was there that was my favorite time? And yeah, there was. Um, Joseph, the local who lived there in our encampment in the bush with us, and he was there to sort of keep us from killing ourselves, basically. He had several wives, two actually. He had one who was named Mimi, who lived there in the camp with him and us. And he had another one, I don't know what her name was. I don't think I ever really knew. Uh, she lived in another village. Their relationship was not as close. Um, he had two sons, Bokai and, oh crap, what was his other son's name? I can't remember now. Well, anyhow, doesn't matter. Uh, and the time that we spent with them, um, we had a tape recorder. We had an old reel-to-reel tape recorder. I think they're called Kai. I think that's the brand. Uh, it was a great big thing. Huge. Uh, we got Joseph and Mimi in our hut with us and recorded a message to send to my parents as a Christmas gift. And Joseph sang songs in his native tongue, which is Vi, is the language, V-I, I think it's spelled. Um, and then he spoke, he spoke English fairly well, actually, much better than I spoke Vi. And he um, told my parents that he was so grateful that I had come because Steve and I represented potential work for people in that area um, because of the work we were doing. Uh, Jobs were going to be available and so we were held in high regard because of that. And so Joseph was so grateful that, that we had come. And he was also grateful because we had become friends and he appreciated that friendship. And that evening that we spent with he and Mimi and the two kids uh, singing and and just talking into the tape recorder for my parents to hear was so much fun. And, so, and it was so sweet because we played it back for him to hear. And I, I wish there was some way for people to see the look I remember on his face. And we all sat down. <laughs> when that happened, he was so tickled to hear his voice and to hear his singing and to hear the words he had said of thanks to my parents and to God for me being there and for Steve. That was probably my favorite time. And that's touched on quite a bit in the book. Now, with the recording, we have a copy of the recording? <sighs> no, unfortunately, my rapid departure under, as you know, stressful circumstances, um, precluded me actually even getting that recording to my parents, and unfortunately it's lost to us, but it will forever remain in my heart. I'm glad you brought up the ending, because other than the, the fire ants, <laughs> I absolutely, I remember I was, I was probably somewhere at 5 o'clock in the morning, I don't remember exactly where I was at. I remember you had emailed me a copy of that, and I was reading it, and I was just, like, really into it. Actually, uh, let me correct you. They're not fire ants. They're driver ants. Driver. Yeah, and they're horrendous, horrendous little animals. They're really, they're scary little beasts, is what they are. <laughs> anyway. Um, that is 
one of the most uh, riveting chapters for me that I enjoyed. I remember mm-hmm. enjoying. Um, but the, the conclusion, and I remember when I was reading the conclusion, that I, I asked myself, this can't be real, because this sounds like something straight out of a Hollywood movie. And I, I read it a couple times, and the ending, um, just, if you haven't read the book yet, folks, you need to buy the book. You can buy it at MythMart, www.MythGorks.com, slash MythGorks. Um, it's, it's, it's a great book. And it, the you. thing that makes it even better is the fact that it really happened. This isn't bullshit, people. This is really what went down back in 1971. Um, but the ending, to me, was just so exciting. I, I could see, you know, big screen, Hollywood, multi-million dollar budget, you know, <laughs> making that, that run from Robert's film, you know, or to Robert's film, rather, um, to, to get to the airport to get back to the United States. It was just, I'm telling you folks, you're really going to enjoy this book. Um, one of the things that I also wanted to talk about is... What led you to decide to write the book? Uh, you did. <laughs> Actually. Um, what was I writing? I was writing, uh, well, I was writing Convict. I was working on Convict, which is my graphic novel, I guess we're calling that. Yeah. I'm not sure what we're calling that right now. Um, and I was well into that. Well into that. Dang near had it done. <clears throat> and I don't remember how you found out about Liberia. Did I tell you? I can't remember how that came about that you knew about it. But the minute you heard about it, you made me stop everything and, and write it. You just, just said, Convict can wait. Do this now. Um, from what I can remember, I believe you told the story to Mario. Oh, yeah. Mario came to me. And to, to tell the listeners, Mario was my president uh, of the company for quite a few years. We were very close. He was like my right-hand man. Um, and Sadie had told him this, verbally the story uh, of the Red Hills. And then he came to me, and he told me about it. And I went straight to Sadie, and I'm like, forget what you're doing. You're going to write this book now. Yep, that's what you did. <laughs> and that's what I did. I stopped everything. I, I shelved Convict which I really didn't want to do because I found I had never written anything like a graphic novel before and in doing so I I found a new love I, I just fell in love with the, the genre of, of that writing uh, technique and I was real happy doing it and I didn't really necessarily want to stop and start a non-fiction novel but um it was also a story that I have told other people in the past. One of them is mentioned in the, um, what do you call that part where they say thanks to people? Um, Tina Lucas, who worked with us, uh, had heard the story several times. Because, you know, when you're not doing anything in the middle of the night in the hospital, you got nothing else to do, so you start talking about old times. And, right. and I would tell her different things. And she, every time I'd tell her... Uh, something about what went on in Liberia, she'd say, you ought to write a book about that. You ought to write a book about that. You know, and I go, yeah, right. Um, so between her having said so and then your saying so, well, you presented to me a more professional opinion than God love her, Tina did. And uh, so I guess between the two of you, I, I decided, okay, maybe I should write that. Maybe it is a good story. 
Well, I remember at one point, I whether it come hell or high water, I was published. Uh, yeah, you did say that because <laughs> there was a lot of hell and high water in there too. Because there were times when I I would call you up and I'd say, "Have you read this yet? Is it does it sound right? Is that is that what you're looking for? Is it, doesn't it, it does it sounds stupid to me? Does it sound stupid to you?" Um, I felt very insecure about telling the story in terms of whether or not anybody else would care about the story. One thing that I've learned as a publisher is when it comes to true life stories, whether it's name or society, all you have to do is slap a non-fiction title on there and you've got I hope so. <laughs> uh, but when it comes into exciting storytelling um, again going more into the book um, Sadie brings the reader into the book she, she's narrating the book from beginning to end um, and, and let me back up a little bit here let's talk about the very beginning of the book because you did something that was not normal as far as book you know, publishing um, I own a magazine an online magazine The World of Myth um, and I, I came to Sadie, oh, it's been over a year ago, and I, I told her, you know, this is what we're doing, and I'd like you to do a pre-story, kind of what leads into the Red Hills book. And she put out, before the, head, before the Red Hills, part one and part two, and we originally put it out on the World of Myth. Um, and instead of doing an introduction, which is the norm in publishing, um, Sadie came to me and she told me, hey, let's just put, before the Red Hills, part one and two, let's put it in the spot of the introduction. I was like, that's genius. Um, so, not only do you get a, a, a traditional story in the deep of the novel, but you actually get a little extra bonus where the introduction should be because you're getting a whole lead up to it. Um, do you remember, did, did we go back and forth about doing an introduction or was it just something that kind of... Well, you said you wanted me to do one and, and I didn't have an objection to doing one, but it, you know me, I'm pretty wordy. And so by the time I got done, I had like two freaking chapters of introduction. It didn't seem smart to have that. And, and, and then I'd said everything in that, so I didn't have anything left to put in an introduction. And so it just seemed like the natural place to put that information. Um, it, it's, it fits. And at first, to be honest with you, I, I wasn't really sure you know, how that would work. Mm -hmm. Most people would open up, they're like, okay, where's the introduction? So the introduction to the story. But it's just kind of like it, what you was sets the tone not in depth um, as to the rest of the novel but it gets you ready it's, it's kind of like uh, like I get something which was um, when you were writing what made you decide to go first person versus third person was there anything or was it something that you were like okay I know that I need to marry this I couldn't do third person because it was too much me. The, the, what I was telling people in, in the story was right out of my gut, and I couldn't do that in third person. So, doing it in third person, they would lose the emotion as to what you did in first person. 
Well, it took me out of it. Um, I, I don't know. It's kind of hard for me to explain, but when I write, when I was writing this, anyhow, um, I'm there. Um, reliving everything that happened. If I were to tell it in third person, it would take me back out of it again. Right. And and I, I, I couldn't do that. I had to be there to, because I could remember, as I was writing, I could remember the smells and the, and the, the, the sounds and the, the feel of the, of the country. I don't know if you've ever been to a foreign country or not, but I hadn't been. I mean, yeah, I'd been to TJ, but that doesn't count, right. okay? <laughs> uh, for those of you that don't know TJ, that's Tijuana, and Mexico is not that far away. And don't drink the water, folks. Right. <laughs> and I've been to Canada. That doesn't count either. That's not, to me, foreign. Okay. Pardon? <laughs> yeah, right. But I'd never, I had never been out of the country. When I, and I talk about this in the book, when I... When, when, when I came to the door of the airplane and that incredible heat and humidity slapped me in the face, it was like, holy shit, I'm in another world. It, so what are we talking about heat-wise? Oh, Africa hot, totally. I mean, then I, I, you know, I steal so, that from... So we're talking about... Oh, you, oh you, well, no, 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 it was an airport. I mean, you know, it wasn't like, you know... The, Maasai tribes weren't out dancing and shit, but you know it was, uh, it was just hotter than blazes. I knew it was going to be hot, and and the heat wasn't just it. It was, it smelled different. It felt different. It looked different. Everything. That's where the red hills comes in. The the, the dirt there is red. You know, like in in uh, uh, Georgia and Alabama, they got red soil. You know, this is everywhere. All the hill. Well, not all of them, but. The hills are red, and and it's such a contrast with the, the jungle foliage, uh, which is where the green vines comes in. Uh, the dried monkey meat we can get to another time. But um, just stepping out of that plane and into that world, when I wrote about that, that's where I went there again. I had to tell it in first person. I didn't want to come back out of it while I was telling about it. And I would write for hours and hours and hours sometimes just because I didn't want to leave, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You get so involved, you're reliving the story, and everything around you is, dis- is, is dissipating. And yeah. you are in, you are I was living. there, I was there. So yes, I, I, there. I totally understand. And the more I wrote, not to interrupt, but the, oh, mo- the more I wrote, the more I remembered. Uh, that I had I had forgotten, and and I think that also came from the first person approach, because um, <clears throat> by using the first person, I was there, and by being there, I I could remember what I saw, I could see it in my mind's eye, and that would remind me of things that I had sort of stuck away in the back of my mind someplace and really forgotten, you know. So it was it, for me. It was the only way. I couldn't write it any other way. Again, folks, you guys got to really sit down and read this. Um, like I said earlier, uh, Sadie would send me emails with the story, and, and I would set and I would read, and I'd give her a call and give her my critique. Um, and 
it's one of those stories where I'm, I'm so engrossed. I, I remember I was sitting in my car. Um, I was taking college classes at the time, and I was sitting there reading the story, and I got so caught up in the story. And when I finished reading that chapter, what well, wasn't even a chapter, it was just a piece of the story. Um, I looked at my watch, and I had realized that I was like 30 minutes late to my class. It, it really sucks you in, um, and I can't say enough good stuff about it. It was just, like I said, when I heard the story originally, verbally, I knew it needed to be done. Um, and I did twist some arms, and, and I, I got my way. <laughs> so, um, let's go in, because we do have time. Um, uh, and I do, I, that was one of the things I wanted to tackle was the title. So you've already explained the red hills, the green vines. So where does the dried <laughs> monkey meat for dinner come into play? Well, it comes, actually comes from two different instances. There's a story that I tell in the book of when we first came to our camp in the bush. And the bush um, is like, oh, how do you describe the bush? Um, it's just way out in the bush. <laughs> it's out in the, away from all the cities, away from the towns, away from most villages, just out in the middle of the jungle. Only in this case, our camp that was built for us in the jungle actually had, on three sides was jungle and the fourth side was beach because we were right on the coast. Well, when we first came to that camp, the first night we were there, first day that we were there, <clears throat> Everybody wanted to make sure we were comfortable and happy. And uh, they had several huts built. We had a sleep hut. We had a work hut. We had a storage hut. We had a cook hut. Um, we even had a potty hut. We had the whole nine yards, each in its own little hut, kind of like different rooms in a house, only they were huts. Um, and the cook hut it wasn't yet set up for my use, and all it was was a hut, four sides and an open space for a door but in the back of it toward the rear on the ground was a little sort of fire with some twigs together in a circle with a little curl of smoke coming up from them and on a rack wooden rack probably bamboo uh, sort of behind that fire um, sat something I don't know what it was it was something that they had been smoking over that curl of smoke. Now, are we talking like give it smoke flavor, or are we talking mm, like? No, that was kind of the way they were cooking it. Oh. Sorta, I think that's what they thought. Um, they being Joseph and Mimi, and um, nothing would do but that they would offer me. You know, we'd walked for three hours. It's a, it was a long way from Monrovia, which is the freeport of Monrovia, is where we did our business and, and all of that, but when we got to camp, we had to take a two-and-a-half-hour truck ride, and we had to walk three hours, and it was a long trip. So we got there, and they figured, you're tired, you're hungry, have a bite, you know, like anybody would, right? <laughs> so Joseph, bless his heart, he brings me this piece of, I, I found out later it was fish, and uh, said, here, Missy, this is, you know, for you to eat, you know, and I... Uh, I couldn't get it close enough to my mouth to eat it because of the smell. And and I knew it was fish, and I'm really not a fish person anyhow. Uh, I didn't know it was fish, but I soon discovered that it was fish. So 
I had to quickly think because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I didn't want to insult anybody, and I, but I, there was no way in hell I was putting that in my mouth. So I, uh, I told him that uh, I first I said, <clears throat> "Is this fish, Joseph?" And he said, "Yeah, well, yes, Miss Fish. Nice fish. Sweet. Their word for good. Anything that they eat that's good, they call it sweet. It's sweet." He said, and I said, "Uh huh." And I said, "Uh." It, has it been over there on that uh, rack over there cooking? You know, and he goes, yes, Missy. I said, I am so sorry. My God will not allow me to eat fish cooked in that manner. I had to do something. I had to not hurt his feelings. But And and, and I knew that the, the people in that area were, were very religious people. Um... Muslims and and they're, they're very into dietary restrictions and religious uh, emphasis on that and so forth. So it was a natural. He quickly understood. There was no apology needed. He understood, and everything went on just fine. He said, "Okay, Missy, no problem. You know, we'll get you a glass of water or whatever instead." And everything was fine. Well, that was part of the the food thing. Well, then. Uh, yeah, sort of. Well, we had to go into Monrovia one time for, um, Steve was called there to do a project. He had to raise a barge, had gotten sunk in the Tur- what we called the Turd River. Read the book to find out why. Uh, <clears throat> anyhow, while he was um, doing that, I was on the bank talking with some of the local people there. Uh, talking meant I spoke English, they didn't, and just nodded a lot, smiled a lot. It worked. Uh, one of the ladies there was fanning flies off of these blackened, flattened things on a rack. Again, a rack over a little tendril of smoke. Um, and so I asked what it was. Well, it was monkeys. And if you looked at it right, you could see it kind of looked like a Rorschach, of Rorschach, whatever those tests are. Of a monkey, you know, they had splayed them down the middle and then like that, right? Out flat, sort of like monkey bats, you know? And and then just, I don't know what the hell they did to them to make them so flat. I, I, I don't know what they did to them. But they were, God only knows, but they were blacker than the night and 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 leathery and, and really not appetizing looking at all. And the nice lady wanted me to have some monkey meat. Take for dinner, she said. Take for dinner. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> I took this little piece, and this isn't in this, the book actually, but I took this little piece and I put it aside. And <clears throat> as soon as it was feasible, I got rid of it. But um, that's kind of where the dried monkey meat for dinner thing came in. They, those people, you got to understand, this is a this was a, a country in the in, in the depths of poverty. I mean, when this when this lady had a monkey to dry to eat, she was happy. Okay, <laughs> anything that once lived that they could catch and kill, they would eat. It didn't matter what it was. Were, I don't think there was anything they would not eat if they could catch it and kill it. But if they if they found something dead, they wouldn't eat it because who knows how it died, you know? And they were smart enough not to do that. But anything else, if they could catch it and kill it, it was dinner. 
So that's kind of where the dried monkey meat for dinner part came. Yeah. And also there were bits and pieces in the book. Um, the the tribe leader and, and other people as well, they, they called you Missy. Um, where did they get Missy out of Sadie? Well, they didn't get Missy out of Sadie. They got Missy out of uh, when we when we uh, when we left Monrovia, headed for the the camp in the bush the first time. Uh, as I said, it took a couple hours by truck, pickup truck, and then we walked uh, as after, the truck went as far as the road did. And after that, we had to walk the rest of the way. Well, the road ended in this little village called Dia, and the head man didn't call him chiefs or anything, just call him head man, of the village of Dia was named Momokai. And Steve had already met him because, of course, Steve had gone back and forth to the, the camp in the bush many times, getting it prepared for our being there. But I had never met him. And Daniel, our driver, introduced me to Momokai. Uh, he started to say, this is Miss, uh, was, I guess he was going to say, this is Miss Burbank. But he got as far as this is Miss, and Momokai, with his limited grasp of English and his urgency to make me feel welcome, said, oh, Missy! And it just kind of stuck. And so this is Miss turned into Missy, and I was called Missy from then on by everyone. That's how everyone I met thereafter, uh, that's how I was introduced to them. This is Missy. And so that's who I was. I was even Steve called me Missy from time to time. Yeah. Um, also, one of the things that I wanted to uh, get into for the, the listener, um, as well as the readers of the book, um, if they read the book, they'll notice that you refer to yourself as Sam, not Sam. Um, and I, I wanted to back up to the initial name S. Sadie Burbank, which is. Samantha Sadie Burbank. So, initially, your first name is Sam. Samantha. Uh, Steve, that was more of a mouthful than he could handle, apparently. Uh, Anyhow, he didn't like Samantha. So he called me Sam. A lot of people called me Sam. It's a a nickname for Samantha. And, now we barely talked about Steve. I know we just mentioned the name here and there. Um, now, let's go from the beginning. Who was Originally, he was my liberator. Um, I met him at a bar. I was out one night uh, while I was still married. Uh, I was not happily married. And I had gone to a local bar to have a drink or two and dance. I liked to dance. I loved to dance. God, dance all night long if I had the chance. And I met Steve there. Uh, I don't remember whether he was dancing or not, but uh, for reasons only posterity could answer, um, I went home with him that night. Um, he drove a Triumph 500 motorcycle. Never been on the back of a motorcycle before. The moon was out, kind of like it is tonight. And this was in uh, Escondido in the summertime. It was a balmy night. Uh, it was a thrilling ride for me. It was very exciting and romantic, and he was, 
in, in retrospect, in retrospect, I kind of wonder what I saw in him. But at the time, I was very taken, very taken by him. Um, in the book, you'll find out what happened when he got me home. Uh, but um, he and I struck up a relationship that lasted uh, and became more and more entangled, as it were, until it came to the point where um, I decided I need to leave, leave, needed to leave my husband, and uh, it was hard for me to do, and so I can't remember exactly how it happened, except that one afternoon he was there in our house telling my husband that he wanted me. <laughs> Oh my God! I can't believe he actually did that, but he did. You know, and I want your wife, and and I, I really, I think part of me kind of hoped that my husband was going to say over my dead body, uh, but the son of a bitch didn't. He just said, "Well, it's her choice." You know, and that was just so the wrong answer. Uh, and so that's when I kind of knew that whatever he thought he felt for me, it wasn't enough for me. I needed, I needed somebody that that, that would have fought for me a little bit, anyhow. And so we separated, and I went with Steve, and one thing led to another. We wound up living together, and then he got this job opportunity in Liberia and told them he would only go if I would go with him, could go with him, and I did. So that's kind of how that all came about. When I was listening to folks that actually are buying premium download directly, the advertising, uh, and in order to know what I'm talking about, uh, feel free to go and download free versions. Here, what I'm about to talk about. Um, in the beginning of each podcast, we have a advertisement, and the very first ad is about radio buying driver dinner. As the narrator was going through the spill, he said something about the social revelation. Revolution. Revolution. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, it was both. <laughs> revolution and revolution. Uh, how much did that actually come into play? I mean, with you know, that type of era. I mean, I know it was just in the 70s or beginning, you know, one year in the 70s, How did that really come into play the lifestyle that you were about to change? God, I'm not sure we've got time for me to answer that question fully and fairly, but a lot. More than you can even imagine. Um, up until that time, okay, let me backtrack just a little. I was 18 years old when I got married. Now, now that seems terribly young. Uh, at the time, it was quite common for girls my age to marry right out of high school. Very rarely, in fact, did they consider themselves uh, material for the uh, marketplace or the business world or even that of college and so forth. And I had dabbled with a couple of courses in uh, junior college right after high school, but initially... Uh, my, my game plan was to get married, have a family, and be a wife and mother, because that's what young women did in those days. And in the 60s, a lot of ideas came out that, that hadn't before, that 
thank God I was open-minded enough to listen to, either that or stoned enough to listen to, I'm not sure which, or both. Um, but things like the ability to be independent and, and the right to be independent and the almost responsibility to be independent was something that wasn't suggested for women in those days. It was it was all new and, and exciting and different because it, it presented opportunities that women didn't think about. And, I mean, yeah, there was a lot of other stuff went on in the 60s. Yes, there was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and I was happily into most of that, practically all of it, in fact. Uh, and there was anti-war sentiment, and there and and I boycotted grapes with my children in lines around the grocery store, yelling "Viva Huelga!" You know, we we we're not going to eat grapes because the the migrant farm workers are starving to death picking those grapes, so we can go to the grocery store and and pretend like we give a shit. And and, and a lot of times we didn't, but we learned to we learned to care. We learned it was important. It was a hard time. It was a time of real change, a time when uh, you had to be there almost to get it. But it was a time when you had to put aside all those things that you learned growing up, and you had to say, "No, goddamn, you're going to be responsible for yourself. You're going to be responsible for your life. You're going to care enough about yourself to be the person you know you can be, that you think you want to be." Because it's okay to, not as only okay to, but it's it's almost required. Life requires that you step up to the plate and be that person. Those were all ideas that that didn't occur to me as an 18-year-old child right out of high school, the daughter of a preacher, and you know, on and on and on. And then we went to see Hair. Um. If you haven't seen Hair, and if you don't know, and I know there's a movie, I think there's a movie of it, and that may be the only way you can see it, uh, you should. You should. Hair, Hair was the aha moment in, in my um, becoming interested in what I could give to life and what I could take from life besides being a wife and a mother um, it was it was literally life changing for me and I, I could no longer live the way I had I could no longer think the way I had feel the way I had behave the way I had uh I began to express concern for um, people, real genuine concern that I hadn't even thought of before, and it, it changed everything for me. It changed how I did things, what I said, who I said it to, who I said it about. Everything was different. Everything was different for me. The really sad thing was that it didn't affect my husband that way. He... Uh, I don't know. You know, opportunities come when we're ready. I don't think he was ready. I, frankly, I don't think he ever got ready. Um, and it's not nice to speak ill of the dead, so I won't. I'll let that one lay there. But um, 
it was my time. It was time for me to make those changes in my life. Uh, I was approaching 30 years of age at that point, and I, I, I felt if I didn't do something then to, to fix things, I never would. And, and so I did. I started doing things to fix things. I um, hung out with hippies. I became a hippie. I, I uh, volunteered at a... a suicide prevention phone line. I uh, participated in uh, exposure education weekends, which is what we called these things where we got wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants together, and we scared the shit out of them and tried to get <laughs> them to realize that that they could do something different with their lives. Um and I mean, when I say we scared the shit out of them, I'm not kidding. I can't remember if I told that story in the book or not about the Black Panthers. Um, <laughs> I hung out with a lot of, I actually wrote in on uh, one year when I voted, I wrote in, um, oh God, I can't even think of his name right now for president. Oh shit. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> he was Black Panther. Um, but we, we, this group of hippies and these Black Panthers who were, were all like associates together, I guess you could say. We conducted these things where these, I don't know where the hell these people came from, suburbia, you know, they would come to this, this church down in downtown San Diego and, uh, we would, we would do things with them to, to smack them in the face, so to speak. Uh, Exactly. Uh, we took them down into the scuzzy part of town, and and, we're, and we'd turn them loose with a cord, and we'd say, don't come back until you've done something you've never done before. It's, you know, stuff like that. And they'd go to places where you put in a quarter and you can watch a, a, a good sex show, you know, for 15 minutes until things got good, and then, of course, the quarter ran out, and you had to put another quarter in. Stuff like that. Anything we could think of to, to get them to, to realize that there were people on the street down there who mattered. And they were ignoring them. And it would never occur to them to even talk to those people or walk beside those people on the sidewalk because they were dirty and they didn't have a place to live and they and they didn't act the way that these other people did and, and you know, all of this kind of stuff. So we really went out of our way to help them learn that. And there were all kinds of people there. We had we had what we called fuck flicks and, and we showed those on the walls of the of the cathedral that we held our meetings in. There were nuns that came to these things. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and and the whole idea wasn't to show the fuck flicks. That wasn't what it was about. It was to, it was just, like I said, to kind of get them to realize that there was another world out there, that, that it was okay to say fuck. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. It, it was okay. To, it was okay to say fuck. Fuck's a good word. Okay, it's like shit, you know, with George Carlin, one of my favorite things in the whole world used to be listening to him talk about the merits of the word, word shit, because it's the only word that fits sometimes, and the same thing with fuck, it's the only word that fits, and sometimes you need to be able to say that, at least in your heart, if not out loud, and so we tried to get them to understand all these kinds of things, and one of the things that we did, <coughs> we sat them in a circle on the floor, facing each other, and there were, oh my God, there must have been 45 or 50 people in that circle. Uh, we only did this once that I recall. Um, and we had them sitting cross-legged, 
not touching each other, and we told them, close your eyes. And as they sat there in the darkened church with no lights, unbeknownst to them, about 40 Black Panthers came in and stood behind them in a circle. And on cue, they each took their rifles and went cha-ching. <laughs> and no matter what time of the year it is, if it's, you know, back in the 60s or here in 2012, mm -hmm. that, that, that was I think we had to mop the floor. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's just an example, and it's an extreme one, of the kinds of things that we did. Well, these are things that I took time away from my family to do. Some of them I did with my family, my children. Uh, like I said, we boycotted grapes together and stuff like that. But there were other things that I couldn't take my children to do. Um, and so in that sense, I kind of neglected them a little bit. But it were, they were things that I felt they were important to do. Um, in doing all of that, of course, my husband and I grew further and further apart. Uh, he wasn't interested in any of the things I was interested in. He still wanted to cling to that image of me that he had created, uh, sort of a cross between Barbie and Emma, Irma Bombeck, I guess. I'm not real sure what his image of me exactly was, but he... I actually allowed him to buy my clothes for me, pick out my clothes for me, my, oh Christ, even my underwear. I mean, he picked everything out for me, and I let him. It wasn't just him. I mean, I let that happen. And somewhere along the line, I finally got smart and said, this is stupid. This is stupid. Don't, you know, take responsibility for yourself. And, 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 and that's what the 60s taught me, that all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and hair taught me just that one simple lesson. Got to tell you a funny story that happened when when a friend of mine and I were I can't remember what the hell we were in LA for. We were driving around South Central. We got lost and thirsty at the same time, and so we parked the car, and she and I got out, and we went in this bar. And I kind of realized it when I went in, but I wasn't paying attention. Went in and sat at the bar because, you know, it was a small enough place it was, you know, it was not going to be a waitress. And so we sat at the bar and this huge, very attractive, very strong black man came up to us from the other side of the bar with the rag in his hand kind of mopped the bar in front of us and he leaned over and very politely and very quietly said, if you leave now, no one will be offended. And I realized we were in the very blackest part of town, <laughs> the very blackest bar we could have been in. There was nothing white in the room, people or walls, nothing was white. So we said, thank you very much. And we got up and we left and drove a little further out of town to another place where we were not going to insult anybody by showing up and occupying space in their world. Um, well, at this point, I, I want to say, say thank yous. Um, 
Other than being my co-host, uh, S. Sadie Burbank is also a co-executive producer of the whole Jay's Modcast show. Um, and I want to formally thank her for everything that she's done. Uh, we've done a lot of back and forth emails, conversations, kind of getting uh, what we want to talk about, uh, not only for tonight, but for future shows. Um, so thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, My pleasure. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Has it been an hour already? <laughs> so this is Dave Montoya. And uh, Sadie Burbank. And remember, what happens in Burbank ends up on a podcast. <laughs> Have a good night, folks. Wow, well, there we go. See, now I want to read the book. Well, we need to get uh, or Dave or Sadie to uh, send us some autograph copies. Oh, cool. Who's going to autograph them? George Takei. Oh, <laughs> Oh, my. <laughs> well, I would hope Sadie would. Yeah? Why? Mm. <laughs> why are you shaking your head at me? Why Why wouldn't she autograph her own book? This is not the, the, the visually impaired episode. Don't just shake your head. <laughs> well, it's either that or throw hands. <laughs> shaking your head is good. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought. That's right. <laughs> Alrighty. No. Oh. Well, thanks again for another Flashback Friday. Yes. Thanks for joining us. And on, uh, on Friday? On a Friday. On a Friday. On a Friday of all yes. days. Yes. Ready for the weekend. Yes. Some of us are. Some of us. Yep. I'm always ready for the weekend. I read it on Facebook that uh, even the week says after Tuesday, it's WTF. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I got no reason why that was said. All righty. Well, thanks for Flashback Friday. (laughs) We will see you next Friday. All right. Talk to you later. Maybe. 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 Fire us. Fire us. Okay. Subliminal messages. You can't do that. That's illegal. Is it? Yeah. But what about fire us if I only did for fire us, Dave? That doesn't matter. Ah, say, talk, say goodbye to the nice people. Goodbye, nice people. We'll talk to you later. Bye.